attention, please. This is a piece of art. This Kryptonian biological makeup is enhanced by Earth's yellow sun. Dr. Doom wears body to conceal his own mangled form. Worst episode ever. Why? Who shot first? Who gives a shit? It's what's called super nerd nitpicking over something that's not really that important. Trennis Magnus Punches Reality, presented, as always, by Two True Freaks. I'm your host, Magnus, and this is one of the last times that you guys are going to hear this version of my theme song. I'm going to be coming up with something new pretty soon, and at least for right now, what I'm going to say is you'll know the new thing when you hear it. But anyway, so this is the big book report and as usual i'm joined by my old friend and former communist party leader mr chris honeywell how are you sir not a member leader i'm good i'm getting caffeinated it's a uh, it's one of those early shows not too early so i'm awake and and alert and not I'm, I'm used to those late night shows where as it gets by four in the morning, I'm editing out long silences as everybody nods out. Ain't happening today. No. Um, well, and that's honestly, that really just comes down to, you know, the vagaries of both of our schedules that, you know, just to kind of peel back the curtain a little bit. I mean, Chris and I, we record together when we can, and it's just by virtue of the limitations on my schedule. It's rare, not impossible, but it's incredibly rare for me to be able to record with anybody at night. So, unfortunately, I kind of have to drag Chris out of mothballs probably a few hours earlier than he's used to in order to do all this recording. And usually it's on his day off, so poor guy. Well, I'm usually up and around well before before noon. I'm, I've, I'm, it's, it's funny, as I get older, you sleep less. So, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm not one of those up at 6 in the morning annoying people but not yet. i think i'm heading there i think i'm heading there <laughs> i got bifocals now so you know you're shitting I'm on, me i'm you? on the death yeah yeah oh wow it, it, it was really funny because um just as i started noticing with my old glasses that i was having to drop them down to the end of my nose i'm noticing Almost everybody else about my age was starting to go, are you putting your glasses down on your nose? So do I. I have to look down there. And it's just like, yep. <laughs> it's going to be an extra special trip to the optometrist next time. Oh, jeez. Well, <clears throat> the, uh, you know, that's one of the things that I'm about getting older that, you know, we all have to accept. But I, for one, am not looking forward to. I mean, like those random aches and pains and shit that I think I can deal with. Or the idea of taking ten minutes just to just to take a fucking leak 
or something like that. <laughs> that I think I could get used to. I'm yeah, I'm 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 hoping that's like more like 70s and 80s. <laughs> I'm, I'm I'm hoping that's not in the next decade for me. The random aches and pains are they're here. <laughs> but um I, the the bifocals actually once you get used to them they're actually kind of great. They they kind of what they they're sort of almost end up being this tool that you never knew that you could use and they end up being really good for reading and and stuff like that. I've uh and now nowadays, you know, it's not like it's not like the old days where, you know, you're going to end up with some space goggles on you. They they're pretty seamless these days. So, yeah, <clears throat> I'm 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 more worried about, yeah, like bodily organs <laughs> failing <laughs> and stuff like that. All the all the muscles just detaching from the bone and turning to jelly. That's that's more my concern. Fair enough. Yeah, the brittle bone syndrome. Yeah, that's no fun either. So, um, <clears throat> like, it reminds me of the. Uh, there was this time I was driving to school. Well, I say I was driving. My brother was driving me to school. My oldest brother and I, I think I was in. I want to say I was in uh, junior high at the time. And so there are certain aspects of puberty that hadn't kicked in just yet, which may have. I don't want to, I don't want to go so far as to say like saved my life. But like what happened was we got in this wreck, right? It had been raining, it had like right. started raining like 5 minutes before we got, you know, before we got to the crash zone. And you know, as most of you probably know, like the most dangerous time to be on the road is probably like, like the 5 or 10 minutes after it starts raining. Mm -hmm. Once you start getting to like the hour mark and then around there, you know, all the shit that's just on the road that's going to make it slick as ice has been washed off. But in that five or ten minutes after it starts raining, that's when it's theoretically the most dangerous. In the hydroplane zone. Yeah. And that's where we found ourselves. My my brother, he had this uh, – he picked it up for a song. He had this huge 1986 uh, Ford Bronco that he'd, you know, put like the big thick tires on and he'd given it like a, a couple inch lift. He got the Flowmasters on there and everything. And, you know, we, you know, on our way to school <clears throat> and I wasn't even sitting in a seat, you know, I was sitting in like that little back sort of storage compartment near the lift gate. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I didn't even have like a, like a, a seat seat. I was just sitting kind of wedged back there. And so driving along <clears throat> and my brother was having an argument because he's just a kind of argumentative person. I love him to death. But he will take the opposing... A Magnus being argumentative? Yeah, who, who would have thought Jeez. so? Yeah. <laughs> and he's one of those guys, he'll take the opposing side, not because he really believes in it, but that way, that, that's the only way he can argue with you. Because it's there. Yeah. Yeah. I had a roommate in college like that. And um, so, you know, he and his friend, they were just, you know, tearing each other up over something or other. And it's been my experience that <clears throat> when shit is about to go down, you know, if you're about to get in a car crash or um, or you're about to get punched in the head or something like that, like most people will say one of two things. They will say, oh, shit. <laughs> or they will say, oh, Jesus. It's it's one of the two. And my brother is definitely an oh, shit, man. And so uh, all I, I, I happen to look over right as he said, oh, shit. And next thing I know, we basically... <clears throat> Uh, blasted through this intersection, you know, we had a red light, you know, he'd hit the brakes, but 
you know, all the good that does at that point. Right. And I remember looking out the windshield and, you know, many thoughts occurred to me all at once. You know, I thought, well, this is how I'm going to fucking die. And, you know, I kind of wish I would have lived a little bit longer. I'd be okay with dying. I mean, by itself, that doesn't bother me. I just wanted a few more years. That's all. The other thing, though, was I looked at the I looked at the the windshield and I saw the guy into whom we were we were about to crash. And literally <clears throat> was he saying no shit? <laughs> no, his expression. It was just totally placid and calm. He never even had time to change. expressions. Oh. you know, the poor guy, he was just standing there, just uh, sitting there just in, in his truck facing us, just blank faced. And he was just b- b- uh, blank faced until we just shellacked the guy. And at that moment, you know, because of the fact that I was sitting up, I got smashed into the seat in front of me, like folded over on my ribs. And, you know, I hadn't, you know how, like when you're a kid, you're basically made of rubber. Yep. Well, I yep. still sort of had that just because of, you know, my age. And, and even like a year or two later, I wouldn't have that anymore, but I still had it in that moment. So rather than breaking bones, I'm actually folding over. Which I don't I don't know. I don't want to go so far as to say that saved my life, but it definitely saved me a severe amount of injury because instead of having some broken ribs, which are painful as hell. Yeah, I just you know, I was kind of walking a little bow legged for a few days. But, you know, I mean, it was bruised real bad and everything, but it was consider the alternative. I think I got off pretty light, you know, and um, but yeah, I mean, it's just it's weird that, you know, like the older you get those things that you. I almost want to say they've affected your survival instinct. They start going away. And now it's, well, you just don't have as much. <laughs> you, oh, you, yeah. Yeah, and it's just, it's weird. It's Oh, my up. plasticity is gone. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I it's funny. My, my, my car um, totaling car crash was very, I was in a back seat and I was, I was Mr. Oh shit. I was the guy who saw it coming. And then said, oh, shit. But the the people, the person who was hitting us was also we were making eye contact <laughs> and both. <laughs> oh, shit, it <laughs> and it was one of those time. It, it was it was we were going from uh, a Grateful Dead show in Cincinnati, Ohio, to Louisville, Kentucky, mm-hmm. which are very close by. They're literally across a bridge from each other. So we'd cross the, the bridge into into Kentucky, into Louisville and uh we were just driving down like one of the main roads, you know, probably 10 in the morning, mm-hmm. going to get some breakfast. And this woman was test driving a car from that, that somebody had for sale. Oh, and no. And she had no license, no insurance, no registration, nothing. Oh, no. She blew through a red light. She totally missed a red light and just went through it and didn't hit us, didn't hit us straight on. She had got enough warning to turn so we sort of slammed sides into each other but i was in the back seat listening to tubular bells (laughs) nice relaxing tubular bells i had been videotaping not five seconds before that otherwise i would have had the greatest piece of videotape i probably ever shot in my life (laughs) i just put the the camera down and everything so i looked out and i saw the car you know the inevitable where you see it's like oh shit they're coming close oh it's gonna happen and everything slows down and then oh shit 
<laughs> and it spun us around. We spun up onto the sidewalk, and the process of going up onto the sidewalk had folded two of our wheels. Oh, like, man. Whoop, right under the car. Yeah, it'll do so that. So we got out, and we're like, well, <laughs> we're not going home in this vehicle. <laughs> <laughs> nope. Luckily, nobody was hurt. The girl was okay. But, uh, well, who yeah. cares, dude? It's her fucking fault, but. Oh, yeah, yeah. Oh, it was, uh, I mean, as far, you know, when the, when the, when the cops came there, it was like, oh, geez, we're hippies in the, in Louisville, Kentucky on a Sunday morning. Everybody's in their Sunday finest. And Except you guys, yeah. This, yeah, yeah, we were not. <laughs> and, uh, so we figured it was going to be a pretty dark scene when the cops showed up, but no, once they figured out what was going on, they, she was, they arrested her. And, uh, oh. luckily we were in college when we got to the, the concert, which was walking distance from there. We walked to a Denny's eight, went to the concert and in the parking lot ran into people who lived uh, about 500 yards away from our apartment. Oh, bad. We were going back that night. So we just lucked out. Like in, in New York? In, in Rochester. Yeah. Oh, yeah. shit. That college, is awesome. College students that we knew that we were like, hey, are you going back to Racket Club tonight? And they're like, yeah, we got tests tomorrow. And I'm like, so do I. Can we catch a ride? We just totaled our car. <laughs> they're like, yeah, sure. Meet us right here after the show. And then, boom, there we were. Well, I, I kind of ha- it's not quite as harrowing as that. But, I, I you know, it's kind of funny. I've got a um, kind of a similar story. What ended up happening was I got in a car crash. Uh, this is like 10 or 12 years ago or something. I mean, this is way long ago, right? And basically what, what happened was went to – there's this movie theater um, uptown that will – basically it'll, it'll show midnight movies, mm-hmm. right? And I don't mean like some dipshit rigs up his Blu-ray player to the projector. and that. No, I mean like they will show real film prints of stuff, you know? So like Back to the Future, like an original film print of that, or the first Tim Burton Batman movie, an actual fucking film print of that from 1989, you know, and stuff like that. And so one night they were they were showing The Big Lebowski, and I went up there with my now ex-girlfriend, and for I'm not going to say this is the reason I dumped her, but I'm not going to say it isn't either. She just did not get into the movie, and she wanted to leave. She wanted to walk out of the big Lebowski. Oh, dear God. Yeah, no, run. Run from that. So, you know, this is – it's not one of my favorite movies ever, but I do really like it a lot. It's got a lot of repeat watch value to it. Yes. And a lot of movies don't – that one does. And so, you know, I didn't want to do it, but, I mean, you know, she's – Technically, we drove in her car, so she kind of gets to decide when we leave and when we don't. So I said, all right, well, looked over at, you know, my group of friends that I'd gone up there with. I said, well, guys, I guess I'm leaving, so uh, see you. And um, anyway, so we didn't exactly get in a fight about it or anything, but I I was kind of pissed. And I don't know why, but she – it's not that she didn't like driving her truck. She just – if we were together, she wanted me to to drive. I don't know why, but that was just, that's how she liked it. And so, you know, driving and, you know, got off the freeway, exited, and came up to this, to this red, uh, to this red light and, you know, sat there for a while. We were just gabbing with, you know, with each other and the light turned green. I eased on the gas and then all hell broke loose, right? 
there is these there are these fucking teenagers right that were driving around acting like idiots and stuff one of them ran the at this point it was a red light on their side uh, of the intersection my light had just gone green which logically means theirs had gone red right bitch ran the intersection smashed into my girlfriend's truck and you know thank god you know i mean if you have to get into this kind of a crash she did it exactly the way you'd want it to happen where instead of striking you know the door panel she crashed into the passenger's uh, the front passenger wheel basically mm. so that means the suspension took like 90% of the impact yeah. right so again it's you know if if it's got to happen this is the way you want it to happen bitch should have gone out and bought a lotto ticket because from there, she bounced off of the uh, truck because she's driving in this, you know, little uh, VW Passat, I think it was. And she, her car, million to one shot, right? She had this huge, you've seen them, uh, you've all seen them, those huge cement, I don't know what, uh, not cement, those those cast iron, whatchamacallums, those fixtures that are embedded in cement, and that is the traffic signal. That's the yes. Yes. Support beam for that. Well, the other one was this huge concrete pillar this supporting the overpass of the freeway. She did a perfect end zone kick through both of those things. She hit neither of them and then just came to a gentle stop in the in the U-turn under the uh, freeway. And I was like, you know, uh, if you had cut the wheel just a few degrees one direction or the other – You'd be fucking dead right now, okay? Yep. I mean, if you hit any one of those, especially those tiny little cars, you'd be I'd fucking be dead. I'd be getting out of the truck going, hey, you're the luckiest idiot in the world. Well, I, you know, I thought it was a guy and because like uh, who was driving the car because, or guys that were in that car because, you know, what I saw was from the passenger side, this guy get out and it looked like he was going to bow up to me, right? Right. And so I thought, well, shit, you know, I mean – my fucking face hurts and you know, I'm all sore and beat up and it's it just, I'm in no condition. If I have to throw with somebody, I'm in no condition. Right. And I'm trying to pry my girlfriend's door open, but it's like, just because of the nature of the crash, couldn't fucking get it open and everything. And that, but there was one and, and the car was totaled and I got fucking blamed for it too, but by the cops, but, um, you know, try figuring that out. But there was one very small positive thing that came out of that. Right. I got some free, dental work out of it what happened was it used to be that if i opened my jaw like all the way there would be this sort of click popping sound yeah. mm -hmm. and couldn't fucking get rid of it the dentist couldn't figure it out nothing right and so i just thought well it's kind of annoying and like other people can hear it if they're listening carefully yeah listen no, I, I know a couple people that have that same thing it's this weird clunk it's like a clunky cracky sound when they move their jaw the right way yeah and it's just it's fucking annoying well, at the moment of impact, I bounced off of the airbag because the airbag deployed, right? So I bounced off of that and then crashed like the, the side of my head. It hit the uh, the uh, driver's side uh, window hard enough to, to crack the window. And ever since then, though, you know, I can open up my jaw all the way and it's fine. No noises or anything. No popping, no cracking, nothing. And That's awesome. <laughs> yeah. And so I thought, well, there's some free dental work. So Yeah, yeah. right. <laughs> and the old days. But yeah, I ended up getting fucking ticketed for that because um, the cop, it's like he didn't even want to listen to my side of the story. But, you know, that the car that hit us was actually part of a caravan of two of like three cars. Right. There were two other ones. Right. So they all backed up their story or whatever of. 
the lights. I, I, I was in a situation like that as a witness. It was in the opposite, though, where the kids were were for once not at fault. There was a carload of kids and they had the green light and it was a really nice Cadillac of people coming back from, you know, Jiva Theater or something like that. You know, the Richie older people blew right through the red, red light and we were like, look at those guys going through the red. Bam, they hit the car. Cops showed up. And if it wasn't for my friend and I and a couple other people who stuck around on the sidewalk, those kids would probably have been totally, totally to blame. Everybody was just like ready to say, oh, we see what happened here. (laughs) (laughs) Well, that didn't win me any points. That little incident with uh, the truck didn't exactly win me any points with she deserved it for not liking the Big Lebowski, if you ask my honest opinion, as Dr. Love. Well, yeah, and, you know, the thing of it is we didn't really last very much longer beyond that point. But, uh, and yeah, again, I'm not going to... were not good <laughs> at that point. But, you know, like the thing was her parents, especially her mom, like I give good parent, right? Generally, mm-hmm. you know, the parents of my, whoever I'm with, they tend to love me. Not in this case, right? My Like that chick's mom, hated me and so when she's isn't that a wonderful feeling when you're at somebody's house and that's happening too yeah it's always special and so yeah she uh you know the car the truck ended up it was there i mean any idiot who looks at this you don't need to be a mechanic or or an adjuster or anything like that any dipshit can look at this thing and say yeah this thing is fucking total yeah there's there's no there's there's no saving this and so Not she was I mean already not one of my biggest fans hated me even more after that so well after that you were the guy that wrecked the truck yeah after and taking her daughter to a porno movie or something <laughs> yeah pretty much I mean and like the thing was you know this chick that I was dating I mean like to her parents she gave this this sort of you know sweet innocent Mary Tyler Moore kind of image I mean she was a fucking freak I mean I'll, I'll spare you the details but man this chick anyway no I know I I know the type. I know the type. <laughs> My high school was riddled with them. <laughs> the whole world is riddled with them. But yeah, it's actually that's kind of like in it. That's kind of like one of my types. <laughs> I, I like that. I like the, those ladies in a lot of ways. Not as a like regular girlfriend. Well, oh, God. <laughs> um, basically, it. Look, I don't know what happens in like the the negotiation stage, but somehow, you know, some point along the way, I just fucking lost the negotiation. What what we had, I'm not to put too fine a point on it. I mean, I'm sure you guys have an imagination, but at the time, you know, like how she and I started off, it was, you know, a fairly casual thing. Just use your imagination, right? And then I fucking woke up one day and I find myself in a relationship and all of the, and it's like. You know, girl, you and I never made each other any promises. We never talked about the future. You know, my understanding was that this was supposed to be just kind of a a good time while it lasts. And then that's it. And next thing I know, I mean, like she's talking about, you know, kids and, you know, getting in in like weddings and and all of this stuff. And I'm like, hey, whoa, 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 whoa. Yeah. Yeah. Let's settle down a little bit. You know, I'm not even going to say the line. I'm just going to say Admiral Akbar. (laughs) <laughs> yeah it's a parent trap yeah so yeah. Uh, yeah yeah anyway so yep you were you you that car crash probably you were probably within two months of being pappy 
Pappy Magnus. Yeah. I, well, I, and the thing was, like, I wouldn't be surprised by it because, like, well, whatever. Anyway, so, yeah, it's just some – it was a it, – it's just one of those weird sort of dating baits and switches that happens where – It's called dodging a bullet. Yeah, well, and in more ways than one because – like sometimes you, you, it's like you're with somebody and it's like you two just you get each other. You're very good friends, you know, but you really shouldn't. You don't have enough there to build on like the long term. You know, you couldn't even force it, you know. And so ugh, it's anyway. And that was definitely one of those, you know, I mean, and, and there's just no there there. You know, she's one of those people who will she will forever be sort of the whatever the guy who was in her life at that moment needs her to be she's got no singular identity of her own right she's right she's derivative of everyone who's around her yeah so if she's dating you know some kind of countrified hick guy then she'll be little miss cowgirl if she's dating me then she'll be you know kind of this computer uh comic book loving techno person you know what i'm saying and it she she it's like she's never figured out who she is and so she just sort right. of sponges off of everyone else and the stuff that defined them whether it's religion or if it's music or some subculture just whatever it is you know and those people are when you think run, about it run for your life yeah. run for your life in dating situations like as coworkers sometimes they can be amusing to watch usually it's not amusing it's like it's it's like yeah it's a psychological I had a roommate <laughs> that was like that, and it ended really badly for everybody involved in the house, landlord, roommates, everything, her boyfriend at the time. It was just, you know, everybody that happened to be around during that time of personality crisis, which may be ongoing for the rest of her life. I don't I don't know. It's been 10 years since I've heard anything about her, but she was she was one of those absorbers of wherever she turned up. That's where that's where movies like The Hand That Rocks a Cradle and uh, oh, what's what, what's the one that actually almost became uh, it worked almost into the lexicon. Now I can't remember, but you know the 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 classic story about the girl who makes best friends with another girl and then just steals steals her boyfriend and her identity and oh, single white female, single white female. Yes, that's it. Yeah, yeah you know, single I, white female has been put into the lexicon to 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 put a fine point right on that phenomenon. <laughs> yeah. Well, like the thing is, I've never even seen that movie. Everybody knows that movie, though. Everybody, a lot, many people have lived that movie in some form or another. A lot of times, it's called, you know, the first few years of college. <laughs> The first few years of college, I was, you know, there were lots of people and lots of stories of like, oh, yeah, my roommate ended up leaving because, you know, she was out of her mind. And for a while she was a punk rocker and then this and then she freaked out and blah, blah, blah. Or she was pregnant the whole time. <laughs> and then uh, one day she wasn't in our room and oh, she was giving birth. All sorts of that's yeah. The wow. 20s are, are that time where people are not. Um, haven't formed their brains yet. Hmm. Well, you know, I mean, I had this non-girlfriend. I, at first, was very interested, but it's one of those things that's like the closer you get, the more uncomfortable you are, and then you, it, it just gets to the saturation point where you're like, hey, no, no thanks. But she had a similar 
kind of thing where she was stalked by this couple that ended up marrying each other. Mm-hmm. And I wouldn't go so far as to say that like they were official polyamorists because I don't I just don't think they were. They were interested though in her. They wanted to like include her in their relationship. And I, which if you can finagle something like that, I mean assuming all parties consent, well what business is it of, of mine? Good. But sounds good on paper. Yeah, a lot of people can sell that sell that idea working out in reality. Well, and and honestly, I mean, who's to say how it would have worked out? But it's just it's one of those things that we'll never know the truth about. But they went like full lurk on this non girlfriend of mine. I mean, they were like actively stalking her. And you know, the thing is, I I happen to think a lot of women, like at their core, they have this unstable factor about them where. They are convinced that the entire world is out to stalk them. And I'm sorry, bitch, you're probably not that interesting, you know, but every now and then, you know, there comes a, there, there, you know, one of them comes along with a story that, oh, yeah, well, that's exactly yeah. what it is. You know, I don't, I, yeah, I, I also think deep, well, I think deep within, I, I want to, I was going to say the male psyche, but it's in the female psyche too. There, there's a lot of people who are stocky, uh, you know. I mean, as as an internet troll, I've been stalked a number of times, either by like people with weird romantic ideas or people who just hated me and wanted to dig up dirt or or find something to, you know. I, I just recently had some guy who's like, I'm a you know college teacher, so I know more than you about this subject, and I'm like, well, you're not presenting anything. Blah blah blah. Getting in an argument with him, and then before you know it, he's pulling up. You know, um, you've seen you've seen the one video of me, um, the Arthur Ratnick video from the Mem movie where I'm in my military gear with my goggly glasses on and talking about interdimensional stuff and smoking a cigarette. I fucking love that video. That is such a masterpiece of. <laughs> My name's Arthur Ratnick. Um, I've been, th- I've been. Well, I was in the army to start out with, and then I was in. First, I started out with the the Browsers, the Browserians, and I was in the Browserians for five years before I was deprogrammed by um, Vargas Pike of the Mento Frias. And I was a Mento Frias for many, many, many years, and. I've been living in the woods, and I'm interdimensional. You know, I'm pan-dimensional. I use my third eye, and I follow um, enhanced nodes of conditional um, probability, which most people roughly would want to call it luck or whatever. So when you're in the woods, it's quiet in the woods. It's quiet a lot. You get to do a lot of thinking to yourself, which I did, and. I started picking up on the on the mem, and I can see that these kids have got some. They're going somewhere. This is going to be big. And I can it, it, there's a conditional cloud over these guys like you wouldn't believe. So that's why I'm here. I'm I, I figure I'm going to be on the next thing, and this is the next thing. This is going to really actually probably work if everything that I've experienced is correct. 
Well, that guy, that guy's throws that, you know, all of a sudden in this Facebook thread, there's that video posted up. And he's like, is this you, Arthur Ratnick? If so, then why should anybody trust your opinion? You know, and I'm like, dude, you are stocky for a college professor, you know. And then I'm thinking, hey, if he found that video, he must have found the videos of my friend and I actually teaching a college class. <laughs> what does he think about that? But it's just, you know, they, I've I, I've known I there was a girl in the early days of Two True Freaks and from I want to say MySpace or YouTube maybe she saw a video of a of a an artist that I like that was like semi stalking me and I remember telling her yeah you can stalk all you want but you'll never figure out my real name and it only took her about a week <laughs> oh shit <laughs> yeah and she she became a, she was one of the early listeners of the show as as far as I know she might be listening if she is hi Mari how are you doing <laughs> oh. Scott Gardner and I say hi <laughs> haven't heard from you in a while <laughs> that's great in a strange kind of way but yeah <laughs> well she ended up she was a big Disney fan she she uh, she was out in the West Coast and was like going to Disneyland all the time and stuff so I, you know I mean. I don't think stalking is necessarily a negative thing. It does turn negative a lot of times. It's just, or you know, sometimes it's just obsessive. I know I've, I know I've, uh, I've looked up a couple of my old, of my old crushes from high school, but I never wrote them and were like, "Hi, remember me?" Well, yeah, and the thing was, I mean, it's one of those things that I never. What I mean, like, because when you think about it, like one person's stalking is another person's just idle curiosity. You know, well, I haven't heard anything out of, you know, what's her name in a while. I'm just going to see if I can find her on Facebook. Oh, I guess she's doing okay. So now what's for lunch? But, you know, you're just looking at somebody's Facebook page, but somehow, like some people would consider that to be stalking. I'm not taking, I'm not going to editorialize on that, except to say that there was this chick that I went to high school with and dude, she was fucking gorgeous i mean in my opinion apparently mine was the minority but in my opinion she was the hottest girl in my school there's just no question i mean to me there was her and then there was everybody else that's how friggin' hot she was right uh-huh so, um, i got one of those yeah well and I like the thing do. was you know she ended up she saw something that i posted on a, a mutual friends um facebook and she said, "Oh, well, hey, that's Magnus from high school." So and and so like she friended me and like she remembered me and like the thing was, I, look, dude, I thought she was really hot and everything, but it's not like we talked all that much. I can right. I can only remember like two, maybe three conversations with her. And like somehow she remembered and she's like, "Oh yeah, I remember you were fucking funny and all this and you know, it's like every day you had something fucked up to say and I really don't remember that." Like at, and I got a pretty good recall. I'm not one of those guys who kind of smoked himself retarded after high school. Not- yeah, but it, it, that's how memory is, though. You have your associations, and other people have other... I, I have people... I like to think that I have a really good memory of stuff. I remember, like, whole conversations I'll have with people and bring them back up years later. But I'll have... Um, somebody... My, mo- my mom ran into um, the mother of one of my friends from high school... And she was telling all these stories about when I used to hang around with this kid and my mother was giving him back to me. I'm like, 
I don't remember doing that <laughs> at all. But they they you know they have an association with it, and it's their like clear clear memory about something. And and it was like I should remember that. I have ze- it's nowhere in my banks at all. Hmm. Yeah, it's just it's weird. like the subjective nature of memory. I guess yeah. that is that is kind of a weird thing. But anyway, and but. It's, it's just, torturous, isn't it, though, when someone like that's like, I remember you, and then you think, oh, man, if I was just paying attention in high school or, you know, a little more aggressive, I could have been, like, friends or dating that, that person that was... Well, you see, the thing is, that thought crossed my mind. That occurred to me. And then I started thinking, you know, I, you know, since she friended me, like, once somebody friends you, then you can see, like, their whole Facebook, right? Right. And I started looking around. I thought, holy shit, I think I really dodged a bullet here because... <laughs> Because I looked at who her at the time who, who her fiance was, and I knew, I and rather well I knew somebody who was his teacher at the school he went to, which was different from ours. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> he went to some other school, and I knew one of his teachers. Right, I was on a like a first name basis with one of his teachers, and you know he like the subject of this guy had come up on not frequently but once or twice, and I remembered the name. And this guy, you, dude, you talk about bad news, right? This is a guy you don't want to, you, you don't want to know. You don't want somebody like this as a friend and in your life, you know. And here she is. She's basically fucking married to the guy. And I thought, well, if this is what she's looking for out of a relationship, then uh, yeah, maybe she tamed him. <laughs> well, not really, because you know they're not together anymore. And oh, of course yeah. he left her because he's he's just an unstable son of a bitch. I mean, that's just who, like that kind of person. That's just who they are as people, yeah. right? You cannot, you cannot domesticate somebody like that, you know. And so anyway, and it ended about the way I I figured it would. And so, um, and it's one of those things where you're pretty sure you know how it's going to end, but like to warn this person is like so far not your business, you know. I mean, you are way out of line if you say, "Well, I really don't think you should be with so and so," because I think he does fucking drive-by shootings. Well. Not your. That's not exactly your your call, is it? You know. It's it's yeah. It's not gonna yeah. It's not and it's not gonna work. <laughs> it's you know. It might be good advice ten years down the line. They'll go. Hey, you know what? You were right. But you know, it's it ain't gonna do you any good in the in the immediate. Oh, geez, mine. Mine was. Uh, uh, she didn't make it through high school. She and the, their family moved out of town, and mine was like the perfect. She's just like the perfect high school crush for a nerd, like any nerd guy mm-hmm. she had like the mysterious family like her mother was this like spanish art artist woman and her father worked for the cia mm-hmm. nobody really knew what he did and he was never around and they had a big old house you know big old creepy house mm-hmm. and she was just gorgeous you know long black hair like gorgeous ballerina type person and i ended up getting to know her by be we were in the uh play called the miracle you know the miracle worker the helen keller play and she was helen keller and i i was you know i was basically i think the probably the smallest part in the play i was percy the servant boy but i was there in the um (laughs) during the big scene with the water you know Mm -hmm. but anyway i was i was percy the servant boy so i had you know i had the bit part in the play and she was the lead role and she was, te- you know, tearing things up. She was just a born actress to the point of where me being maybe like 10 years old was like, this woman, this girl's going to be famous 
someday or you know she's going to be really successful because mm-hmm. she's like she's got the director crying during rehearsals and stuff like that and so you know i was totally just like Duh. but i was a little nerd kid so i wasn't you know i would just like sign up for every play that she was in and and stuff like that and i would be like oh well it looks like she looks this, likes this guy but it turns out all those guys were gay and she just hung out with all the gay guys because she was an actress yeah, well, that's kind of unavoidable in that world, yeah. So, and uh, well, in Carthage, New York, in Carthage, New York, she probably also understood that they were gay at that point, and no, and like no, I di- I didn't know what was up with that. So she was probably like, you know, I'll be friends with them, or whatever. And so I I looked her up recently, and I believe she's in Texas actually. Oh wow. And she's every bit as beautiful as she was. She didn't go into acting, though. She went into dance and singing. And now I think she's an alto um, and like does these super arty, artsy, fartsy, you know, tributes to the goddess of nature. Um, but she's got that that like heart stopping voice. It's like it's like the scene from. Um, Oh, what the hell is that movie? The Fifth Element. Mm. Oh, and, uh, and the the opera singer comes out and just mesmerizes the crowd. I was. Oh, I thought one, you were going to say she sounded like Chris Tucker. No, <laughs> <laughs> no, the opposite of Chris Tucker. It, like I was watching the videos and like when when things get a little too artsy, touchy feely, I immediately turn off to it. And this is like the kind of stuff that's like a little too arty, touchy feely. But boy, when she started singing, it was just like, oh, man, that this, you know, that mesmerizing you're seeing like pure, unfiltered talent. So she turned out to be (laughs) probably 10 times as intimidating as she was before. (laughs) So there ain't no way I'm turning up. Hey, remember me, Percy? (laughs) (laughs) How you doing? (laughs) Hey, uh, check your your instant messages. Oh, okay. I got my big book of bads um, hanging over my. Uh... Oh yeah. And that's her. And uh, like I say, I mean, guys, I'm I'm committed. I'm happily committed. I love my girlfriend. Wouldn't trade her for anything. And as I say, I affirm the fact that I that I dodged a bullet here, but good golly, that chick is just gorgeous. It's like to this day, still gorgeous, I think, you know. And uh, yum, she's a yum. soprano. I'm sorry, I'm I'm stocking up right now. She's a soprano. Soprano. Yes. <laughs> okay, dude, you sounded totally lurky just there. Yeah, I'm. I've I've got her website. <laughs> sitting in front of me i shouldn't say there she is oh i see what you're okay sorry we're talking about somebody else now okay now i'm i'm now i'm i'm shooting you mine now you i get to look at yours Uh, oh boy yeah yours is more all-american yeah uh yeah yeah this chick is good looking look at this and, and here we are. We're talking about stalking. She's got to be pushing are. fifty. Yeah, we're doing the big book of bad today. So every all our little topics have been uh, pretty much, I think, good and consistent with <laughs> with this book. <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> well, I, I guess I'd like to finally get into it though. Uh, and you kind of 
you kind of gave it away already, but just, but anyway, um, exactly which big book, because that's what we're talking about this time around. Uh, in, in these seventh episodes, I do what's called the big, big book, book report. report. So which big book are we going to be talking about today? We are doing the big book of bad. And it didn't have George Thorogood in it. No. And like the thing was, I mean, I'm going to be changing up my theme song pretty soon. So I want you know, my listeners to hear to hear the old theme song just one, you know, not one last time, but, you know, for however long it's however much longer it's going to last. I want them to hear it. Otherwise, yeah, I would totally have used that George Thorogood song somehow in this episode. Be sure of that. So <laughs> it's either that or Michael Jackson. So there you go. Both ends of the spectrum. I don't think I would have used that. <laughs> Fair enough, yeah. <laughs> and uh, basically, as the uh, as the title of it would kind of lead you toward, this is basically anything that could be generally referred to as bad, whether it's just, just a bad, bad, bad fucking idea, or I would say we're talking at this point, no offense, Chris, about pure evil. Yes, no? there's some pure evil in here that, there was there was some stuff that I was like, I don't know if I would put this in the bad category. And then there was some stuff that I was like, I think this, you, you know, Stalin is like maybe a little beyond bad, you know, um, Himmler. <laughs> maybe bad is a little mild for 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 Himmler, you know, mm. but. Well, and the thing is, I mean, th- you know, we've done so fucking many of these big books now that, you know, a lot of these, even the, even the writers are, you're starting to notice a lot of the same writers are writing these things. So the big book of bad was written predominantly by Jonathan Vankin, Anina Bennett, Paul Kirchner, and Steve Vance. Now, I only know these writers from uh, the uh, big book series. Are you familiar with, with them? From- None of them outside of big book well the uh okay i just i would have assumed they were more from underground comics but then again if you think about it that's even that's a pretty i don't know if it's a big world but it's a very diverse world so you know it just so just because of the fact somebody comes from that world if they do doesn't right. necessarily mean you you would have heard of them i guess so that well, makes so sense. this is also the weird like like you get into undergrounds and stuff and you don't really have writers as much you have writer the, the writers the artist you know they do everything from scratch these guys are these, these guys the, i mean these big books are from the time period where it was the lines between being underground and uh mainstream were were being blurred i'm sure most big book of bads were sold in like walden books and you know or Barnes yeah, places and like that yeah i remember seeing stuff. them there. right right and uh this was um, who's who's the publisher of this? Is it Fantagraphics or no? It's it's a Paradox Press, which was an imprint of DC Comics. Of DC, okay. Yeah. So you know, I mean, and I got to tell you, this is actually one of the things that I like about DC Comics. I mean, people they're all over Marvel's cock that you know, oh Marvel, you know, their 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 comics are you know just so realistic and I and relatable and all this. And I'm like, you know what? Where is Marvel's Watchmen, or where's Marvel's Dark right. Knight Returns? Where's Marvel's Vertigo line? Where's Marvel's Paradox Press? And where where are their their big books? I mean, as far as diversity of material, I put DC in the '90s, especially in the '90s, 
ahead of everything. DC DC was trying to go into in in the nineties. You know, we had a books bookstores in general, but you know, we had an in, indie <clears throat> bookstore. It was a big bookstore, but it was you know independently run. It wasn't. A, it was a Village Green bookstore, and uh, you know, you would go to the magazine section. And there would be the comics, and you would have Marvel, DC, you would have Undergrounds, and then you would have the stuff that was sort of in between, all stuck in together, and uh, and the stuff and the stuff like this big book was getting some play back then, and DC was smart enough. Like Marvel, it seems to me they barely dipped their toes in it in the seventy in the in the, I think it was mid seventies when they did comics book with an X. And they hired a bunch of like real honest to God, like underground, you know, our crumb era guys to do a few issues of it. It didn't do well. And then they just never did anything like that again. Mm-hmm. You know, it was a magazine size thing. And and yeah, I mean, Marvel toyed a little bit with more adult magazine type stuff, but it was still pulpy. You know, it wasn't really alternative. It was it was you know, Dra- Tomb of Dracula and stuff like that. Hmm. Yeah, D- DC really, like, and and still is is still trying. <laughs> well, it, That's a, I've never thought of that. Marvel never has had anything like the Watchmen. They've had some run, like, they had those, like, I would put, like, Frank Miller's Daredevil run as being somewhere in that Watchmen-y sort of game-changer category. But it wasn't the same thing. It wasn't a, a fostered, you know, let's do an Alan Moore project. Yeah. And I, I'm i not saying that, you know, to piss on Marvel Comics because, you know, I've read a lot of Marvel Comics and I, you know, I enjoy, you know, the I guess the the Marvel ethic of creating comics and, you know, trying to be something original. But the thing is, they tend to confine their efforts of you know, toward originality, mostly to the superhero genre. And there's nothing wrong. I love superheroes. But, you know, the whole point of doing this big book series is to say, guys, there's more to comics than just superheroes. And, you know, and and especially like the idea of doing, just think about this, nonfiction comics. Dude, that's fucking genius. You know, we should have had those years ago. A lot of my favorite comics are nonfiction comics, actually. You know, they're, they're some of the most fun stuff, uh, real stuff that the, the, the um, uh, Dennis Eichhorn would write them all and various artists would do it. And it was just stories of his life. He had a super and he just died recently, had a incredibly interesting life and he wasn't the best person in the world in his younger days. So he has stories. Go- I mean, just hundreds of comics of of his stories of his own, uh, some of them great and inspiring and none of uh, others of his personal degradation. He wasn't shy. American splendor, mm-hmm. you know, and that's just auto autobiographical stuff, you know, stuff, stuff like this is like the, like the big books. They're not really, I mean, you can, they're, they're there to learn from, but they're primarily entertainment. When you learn from them, you might pick up something that you haven't seen before, but they're, almost like uh, a collection of jumping off points you know that you could go through a, these big books and and find a subject that you might not have heard of and then pursue it 
you know, deeper if you wanted to know more because, you know, they can only give a sort of glossy coverage of them. Well, for for a lot of things, yeah. But I would actually say that at the time that it came out, the big book of conspiracies is probably my favorite of the big books. And when you think about how definitive, like for its time, you know, because, you know, new information comes along and then again, so do, so do new conspiracies. But at the time mm-hmm. that it came out, I would say that the big book of con, uh, of conspiracies was, you know, whether or not you even believe in those conspiracies, I do believe it was a very thorough summation of uh, very popular conspiracy yes. theories at that time, except for one. And I found it very telling that the big book of conspiracies acknowledged that people question the moon landing, but it didn't even, it, it's like it didn't even touch it. You know, it's right. like, that, this is how fucking retarded that is. We're going to acknowledge that those people exist and then we're just going to move along, you know? That, I actually, I you know, I happen to think, you know, y- yes, you're right, but I, I, I want to make sure that people understand that I don't know if that's completely true of the big book of conspiracies, but... See, I think us nerds have an extra little, little piece of you know, rocking our shoe about the moon landing, the fake moon landing thing. I think, because I, I know Scott Gar, it pisses me off. One of my favorite, and I know you love the video too. Is is of uh, what is it, Buzz Aldrin? Oh just, yeah, just cold cocking that guy in the face. That's one of my favorite. Vi- Everyone, so if I'm feeling down, I'll go watch that video. And I think it's a nerd thing because we love the exploration of space. And, you know, and and to see the, the, these people just come and say all these people and there's people who like lost their lives trying to get into space and get onto the moon. And, you know, there were there were and all this effort was made. People risked their lives to do it. And then you have some slob who all he's done is sat in front of a computer all all the time and and not dealt with his psychological problems running out and following these old guys who should be, you know, we should be carried around on their, our shoulders and starts calling them liars. And that, cause that's what it boils down to. It's you have your, you know, present your conspiracy theory and all that. And I can scoff at it or whatever. It's almost like the Paul is dead thing. It's, 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 but the Paul is dead thing doesn't really degrade anybody you know it sort of degrades paul mccartney but he's a celebrity he's the richest musician in the world he'll deal with it that there's people who are like you're just a lookalike paul okay whatever <laughs> i'm gonna go back home and have a nice vegetarian meal in my billionaire mansion so but you know that that kind of stuff uh just it it really it grinds my gears man well, if there was – here's the thing. I mean if there was like a real conspiracy to that – and I don't mean somebody just making up a bunch of bullshit. I mean if there was something like substantial about it, I would want to know. You know, I I, yeah. I don't necessarily want to believe it, but I would want to know, you know. The thing is everything that they – that I've heard them throw uh, as far as – uh, conspiracies is just such bullshit weak sauce it, weak 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 sauce if i could all. believe any conspiracy about the moon landing it's not that it didn't happen i could sooner believe that there are things they haven't told us about what about what really happened when we went to the moon you know i could believe that a whole lot sooner than i can believe it never happened 
Right. You know, um, I, it's just every now and then you come across these weird little things on YouTube. And the thing is, it's so easy to fake videos and evidence and all these other things these days. I saw one guy, he had a YouTube channel at one point, and that was actually what he specialized in. He said up front, everything I'm showing you is complete fucking bullshit, but this is what you can do. Is it the faking hoaxer? I think so. Yeah. Or, one, I love the faking hoaxer. He's so talented. Well, and the thing is, sometimes like he would unintentionally start sure new stuff and he would got he would say guys i'm telling you how i fucking faked all of this i he mean he started watermarking everything the faking hoaxer so people couldn't yeah he did a he did a like old footage of a of a trip to mars a, a co russian american trip to mars mm -hmm. you know by editing footage together and he, you know, he has a home computer. He's just very talented. He did one of the uh, a crashed space shuttle in space mm -hmm. that that was amazing. It looked real. Everything he's done has looked real. Yeah, and you know, it, it's so easy to fake shit like that these days that it's you kind of need to have your your bullshit filter cranked way, way, way up. But even on that basis, you know, you hear these little stories. Sometimes about, you know, alien moon bases and, you know, we only see, you know, basically NASA approved pictures from the moon landing that really did occur, but they're just not showing us everything they've got. And, you know, on the one hand, again, it almost seems a little too fantastic to believe. But on the other hand, you kind of have to wonder, well, we know or at least we can be relatively sure that they're not telling us everything. And it it inevitably leads to the question of what exactly are they hiding, you know? And we don't need to get too far into that other than to say that, you know, again, I happen to think that uh, the big book of conspiracies for everything that it set out to do and for every, you know, for, for the time in which it, it was published, you know, I do think that was a relatively comprehensive look at a lot of the most popular conspiracy theories, which I think at that time were always going to be the assassination of, of Kennedy and anything to do with UFOs. And that was going to be – those were the two the two biggies at that time. These days, I think you've got so much else to work with. But back well, then uh, – the, Yeah, and at that time, two of the big cultural phenomenon was JFK, the movie – the Oliver Stone movie, and uh, X-Files. I, yeah. I mean the, the, the whole weird alien thing during the 90s – was, yeah, it was a, it was kind of a fad. Yeah, it was a fad. It was totally a fad, and 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 I remember it. But it all came back to me as uh, I used to buy, and I still do when I see copies of it, and I'm in where magazines are sold. But there's a great. It comes out of Britain called Fortean Times, and uh, it's based on the work of Charles Fort, who just used to collect. He was, you know, that line between science and and conspiracy theory and weirdness. But he was a collector of just weird stories mm -hmm. and anomalous events and stuff like that. And he was just a fan of like, you know, having all that information there to pour over and stuff. And there's a magazine that comes out and they're, they're usually very they're very scientific you know they, they they follow scientific stuff but they're a little more fanciful in their presentation of it they're not they're having fun with it and uh, I, I I pulled out a bunch of my old 40 in times from the 90s and have just been 
dropped a stack of them by the toilet and have been reading them in my spare time. And uh, it all the ads in them are for these just horribly pumped out, crappily, graphically made. Everything was alien heads. Alien head this. T-shirts with alien heads. Everything was the alien head symbol everywhere. And it was... And and you, you could tell it's been just like hur- hurried out and crappy stuff. I remember when you'd go to a fair and like play this the the games of chance. You know the a lot of the prizes were blow up aliens or these big you know the giant drink holders that would have an alien head and a straw coming out of them and stuff like that. Oh yeah, I remember those. Very yeah. strange. Yeah. <sighs> yeah, that was uh that's actually one of those fads from the '90s. I must say, I don't. On the one hand, I kind of have a little bit of nostalgia for, but on the other hand, I don't really miss all that much. It was like trashy. It was weird. Yeah. And and also just kind of, you know, random because, you know, it it was almost this is one of the few instances in pop culture, at least that I know of, where there wasn't a singular event. Right. Like I think in the late 70s right. and getting into the early 80s, you saw a lot of movies that were that had spaceships and were set in outer space and all of this stuff because of star Wars. There was a singular event that I think more than say close encounters. I think star Wars is probably the more prevalent influence, at least in the short term for that kind of spate of spacefaring movies that came out, you know, and then in the seventies earlier in the seventies, you know, there was, um, you know, the disaster movie that, you know, it, it was sort of a fad and you knew that there was a, there was a singular beginning and to a degree, maybe a, a singular end. But in the case of that alien thing, there was, again, it was just kind of this weird pop culture consensus. There wasn't a, I don't remember there being a single thing that started it. It was like a brew of little things like art bell mixed with the X files mixed with Whitley Strieber. Yeah. Cause that's when he was really starting to make his bones. He was writing a lot of books. Yeah. And, and like the thing is, you know, again, not to get too far off topic here, but one of the things that kind of torques me off about Whitley Strieber is that, you know, people keep saying they keep using the term alien or visitation or and he is careful to avoid saying that. I think he even outright says, look, I'm not saying these things are aliens. I'm just saying I see these things. They right. He's, he, he was, you know, and he was like, I'm not even saying they're real. You know, I'm just saying this is what I experience. So he was definitely taking it from like he was open to whatever answer it was, whether it be aliens, another dimension, some part of his psyche or whatever. He would I I followed all those books and he kept just taking it. They reminded me of Carlos Castaneda, who wrote like the fictional non-fictional they they were in non-fiction for a while and then i think there was a court decision and they ended up in fiction where you know the teachings of don juan books where he would go and visit the old indian medicine man and it got weird they got weirder it was almost like they were pushing what you would the first book was very you know eloquent and interesting and they just got weirder and weirder and pushing it further and further as it went, and that's what Whitley Strieber's books reminded me of, where he was trying to like blur the lines of of reality and fiction a little bit. But you know, it, it's hard. You you would have to sort of 
if you were saying this is not true, you're just sort of calling him out as a liar. It wasn't anything he could prove or not prove. So it was, it was an it was an interesting thing. And if it was fictional, it was an interesting way of thinking about, you know, what the quote unquote aliens are or whatever. He was, you know, following different directions. But yeah, I mean. In the 90s, there were a lot of people convinced that, you know, the aliens were about to show themselves. That's why we had all those cheesy T-shirts, you know. That was all part of the plan to get us used to it. And I, I remember hearing that at the ready time. For it. You know, and I don't mean like years later. And then, you know, we can scoff at, you know, those silly trends from our childhood. I mean, at the fucking time. I yeah. remember saying, you know, if the government was, was going to – if they finally made the decision to disclose – the only thing that I think that would really drive them to do that is the probability of some sort of cataclysm related to aliens in some way. And they're not going to soften us up. They're going to say, right. you know, they may there may be like a sort of a trickle, sort of a drip, drip, drip. And then what I think they would do is, th is that they would hold a press conference. It'd be some low ranking official of the NSA or something like that who says, yes, we do, in fact, have you know, uh, a ship or we have body or fucking, you know, whatever it is that supposedly happened with Roswell, we really do have that shit. And in the next, over the course of the next three months, you know, we're going to sort of throw open the doors and show you as much as we can. All of this is of course going to be preparation because of some other stuff that's happening. And the fact is, I think that's what would make them do it. But then again, if that's what they were up against, if there was some sort of an invasion or a cataclysm that was going to happen, if you knew for a fact when the world was about to end, who would you tell and what would you tell them? Yeah, I, it, it might not. It probably would not be a um, – it depends on how much time there was. If it, if it was a few years, you know, you could, you, could, you could have a lot of people go like go and eat and drink and be merry, you know, or whatever. But – for the most, if you were the government and stuff, it's like it depends. If there was something you could do about it, then I would try to rally people into like, yeah, maybe we can save ourselves. And either if there was something everybody had to do, rally them to do it, or to rally them to just support whoever was had to do it. But if it was like, yeah, the the you know, uh, the comet the size of the moon is headed right for the Atlantic Ocean might be better to just let people have a normal regular life for it's like you know when when you have a, a pet that you have is getting old and is going to have to be put down soon and you're like you know you just want them to just have the last few few months to or whatever amount of time to 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 be normal no no use telling them <laughs> you yeah. know so and th and that's kind of my thought you know i mean well and and the other thing is I would like to believe that I'm a fairly stable person, but if you tell me that the aliens are going to come tomorrow and, and blow the planet up, there's a possibility I may not be Mr. Nice Guy anymore. You know, there is literally nobody, nobody in the world. If they told you in a way that you would actually believe it. I mean, that's the thing is you could tell a lot of people, you know, a lot of guys like you and I would probably be just like, all right. <laughs> well, yeah. The aliens are coming tomorrow. Okay. You know, and. It's just there's it, a there's a per, there's a type of person out there, you know, who will hear that 
believe that. Go out there, kill somebody, eat that person, rape somebody, eat mm, that yeah. person. I mean, there is literally right. nobody in the world who's qualified to say how the world's population, whether it's you know in general or even in specific cases, nobody is qualified to say how we would react. If we were presented with irrefutable proof that mankind is going to go extinct in one week's time, nobody can tell you how we would all react to that. And there is there are so many unknowns to that. I happen to think it would, it's the height of ir- – ir- if there's nothing that we can do about it, it's the height of irresponsibility. It would be sex and violence. Yeah, I and mean, I'm thinking a lot of violence, yeah. And a lot of sex. And a lot of and, sex and violence together. Yeah, yeah, it would be it would be really ugly. It would that's that's the problem is it would be that that trickling up of ugly where you have you have your percentage of the population that's truly ugly that's just like you, you know uh, just like bad, bad to the bone. The the you know the people who are sociopath or psychopaths or you know, sociopaths are actually there's a lot of them that are highly functional and not hurting anybody. But that you know, the 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 people who are like career criminals are just always going to treat people like shit. There's like a low percentage of the population that's just firmly going to be like that. But you change the situations, and that that can uh, bubble up because you know once that that group starts reacting and and sending fear and panic once fear and panic start yeah the base nature can come out of almost anywhere and like then you get the scary stuff of the people who are like the kind you know they were so kind and quiet all their life and all of a sudden they're just like i have you know 24 hours to actually have some fun for once in my life or to to go berserk so yeah it would be it would be uh, not pretty. I would want to be. I would want to be in a bunker somewhere. <laughs> yeah, no kidding. Well, anyway, to get into the big book of bad, though, the the back of the uh, uh, of the book, basically, this may be the best summation that we can think of. It says the devil made him do it, or did he? Maybe the devil has influenced lots of people to do some pretty awful things from. Monstrous monarchs like the Shah of Iran to lunatic leaders like Joseph Stalin. But could this same devil have been the inspiring force behind Levittown? Much as he'd probably like to take the credit, the answer is no. Twasn't the devil who created suburbia, twas simply human folly. Sometimes humanity doesn't need the devil's influence to be bad, because bad means different things to different people. Which is what the big book of bad, the lucky 13th volume, and Paradox Press's award-winning series is all about. True stories celebrating humanity at its worst, from the truly despicable to the merely nauseating. From the most reviled murderers of all time to to the worst singers, artists, poets, sports stars, and scientific theories of our modern era. It's all here. It's all bad. And profusely illustrated by over 60 of today's comic artists, it's all good. Which I guess was a catchphrase at the time. So that is basically the big book of bad in a nutshell. So now, Chris, I think you went first last time. So this time I'm going to go first, just kind of arbitrarily. 
My first uh, story that we're going to be working through here, this is on page 38, Joseph Stalin. And for the one or two of you who don't know who Joseph Stalin (laughs) is, he was basically the Soviet premier starting in... Shit, it doesn't even give a year here, but for sure the guy was ensconced and pretty much firmly in power sometime, I would say, in the mid to late 20s at the latest. In the USSR, following the death of the great revolutionary leader Lenin, Joseph Stalin won a fierce power struggle and took over the Communist Party. Taking the name Stalin, meaning steel, he shaped what became the modern Soviet Union through fear and basically... When people talk about, I think when people talk about these sort of tyrannical dictator types, Stalin is pretty much who they're thinking of. I mean, this is these are this is a a a, a type of guy who I would say that you know murder, and I mean mass murder. This was a matter of just simple day to day policy to him, and however many I don't know what you have to do to your conscience to be as unaffected as I assume he was by the, we're not talking about, I'll tell you what he had to do to his conscience. Nothing. Cause he probably had none. (laughs) It's probably socio, you know, sociopathic without any, you know, uh, you know, you know, people are chess pieces to him. You know, I mean, I'm sure he could feel pain for himself (laughs) or something, you know, maybe his family or something, but you know, I mean, you'd have to be just like, so, detached from any emotion any positive emotions <laughs> i mean a lot of people you'd think their go-to for that would be hitler but hitler was like this kind of go for broke death by cop version of the dictator where it was like we're just gonna try go for broke and try to sweep through the whole world and until you know the eventual decline and complete annihilation of themselves Whereas Stalin is the guy who was in it for the long, you know, he was like, this is what my country, you know, he was, wasn't about to take over the world, at, at least like Hitler. And it was like, what are you talking about, dude? Stalin was planning an invasion of Europe. That's well, why, he, that's why Germany invaded them. I mean, say whatever you want about Hitler. He at least read the the tea leaves on that. He knew what he was up against. Well, he, yeah, but yeah, and, it, and Hitler just sort of went for it. These guys... I don't know. These guys, Stalin set that, um, the template of what everybody's pictured Russia to be like. Yeah. Maybe up through the 80s, you know, that, that everything utilitarian. I think a lot of people still have a lot of these assumptions based on Stalin. That is what I think they view the modern Russian Empire to be. Or, sorry, not Empire, Federation. Right, right. You know, it is strange I mean, to think, though, you know, just how close Hitler came to defeating Russia. I mean, honestly, if he'd people who are a lot smarter than me say that if Hitler had launched Operation Barbarossa even three weeks earlier, he basically would have destroyed the Soviet Union. It was basically the weather that did Germany. In. And the idea of that, I mean, when you think about what that would have done to the balance of power in the latter half of the 20th century. Jeez. I mean, I think it's pretty clear that it was going to come down between the United States and Germany sooner or later. 
And guys, we're talking about a country in Europe the, with a population the size of Texas up against the United States. I mean, we would have defeated them. I oh, probably. Uh, I mean, I uh, I assume uh, we would have defeated them. Uh, I I know this might sound hokey or naive, but I think built into stuff like the you know the the Nazi regime and Stalin's regime and all these kinds of like you know I mean here is Russia we're we're going to run a communist state you know we've got this idea of communism and it has its whole on paper thing that it's supposed to do and you can see when almost any country that has that just sort of one thing that they do mm-hmm. it's almost an immediate destruction of it you know so they get their they, they get power and a communist country being that you it's it's words on paper and in brain experiments you can't run a country like that and you find that out immediately viscerally because you have to feed people and almost immediately it just starts coming apart and just becomes power plays and and mass death. Yeah, pretty <laughs> much. Mass death. <laughs> and we're talking like tens of millions of people. I mean, you know. And it, and it breaks apart real fast. So like, these, you know, these well, that, guys. No, not necessarily. Because unless if you've got a solid enough grip, you can hang on. You, I mean, and I mean you, not so much you, but the beast, this machine yeah. that you've put together can hang on for decades. Oh, yeah. No, no. Yeah. For 20, 30 years. But the thing about Russia is it was kind of a superpower, but it was it was kind of it. I think a lot of I mean, they had the weapons and the army and stuff. But Russia has been not a pleasant place to live for a long time. I don't think it still is. You know, if you if you're there and you have some money and stuff, but Russia's still pretty poor and just generally. You know, it's that sort of thing that where we were used to is, you know, from the 80s, even before what you saw coming out of Russia. And that's probably why. And it's the same with North Korea. What you see coming out are like large military parades and all these displays of power. But if you live there, it's like, oh, the heat's off again. (laughs) I'm hungry. (laughs) And uh and if you say anything about it, you're going to Siberia. So it just was it there was nowhere near a utopia or nowhere even near the I, I think the image of Russia as being powerful was like yeah, it's powerful, but it's not a controlled type of power and it's also a, a kind of you know, wonderful Wizard of Oz type of power, where it, a lot of its a lot of its um, posturing and uh, showing off and and stuff like that. It's just, but that's the Russia. Th- this is the early days of like mm, communism, blah blah blah, and necessarily just ended up being the bloodiest decades of of Russia. You know, I would not have wanted to live in Russia during this time period. And it's funny, and you think about it, you think, well, if you're in the hierarchy and stuff, it might be okay to live there because you you have food and stuff. But no, you you never know when you're going to fall out of favor and you're going to be on the chopping block 
And it, and that's the thing. It was also there's literally nothing you could do. It was completely right. arbitrary. Right. And I think most people, even if it's an unjust and inhumane system, I think there's something about the human psyche you can conform. It's only when there's yeah. no established rule to anything that's when we start getting into you know people start talking revolution and you know it's kind of funny that the ussr i guess as an empire for lack of a better word it for as pissed off as the people surely had to have been especially when you start getting into the early to late 80s yeah the i guess the the wheels coming off the wagon as opposed to somebody sticking a, 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 a big chunk of dynamite into the wagon and then blowing the fucking thing up. It just crumbled. It didn't, it wasn't toppled from some sort of a revolution. And I mean, an armed military type of revolution. Yeah. It was it just, completely of the people. It, the revolution was cultural. More it than, just, the culture wore it down and wore it down. There, I, I still think Russia is in this I – th I think the, the long-term train crash is still happening. You know, you could uh, – I, I think uh, – I'm, I'm, I'm pretty sure that Russia is on the edge of – and has been for a while on the edge of economic collapse, you know, at any, any point. I, I, I think economically they're in just horrifying shape. And all they really have going for them right now is Putin. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. And that's scary in its in its own way. But you know, yeah, I think that I think Putin's personality is literally holding Russia together. That and probably organized crime <laughs> are probably what keeps the trains run. You know, any semblance of an economy in Russia. And yet, you know, there's a contradiction to all of that in that, look, I'm at a real loss. Maybe maybe I'm, I'm no expert on Russian history by any means, but I'm at a real loss to be able to think of a time when Russia had a decent, solid, dependable government, right? Maybe it's happened and I just don't – and I'm just not thinking of it. But at least in recent history, which I define to be the last maybe 100 or 150 years – I can't really think of a time when the Russian people ever had it made. And yet, you are hard-pressed to find a more patriotic and at times nationalistic society than That's just than human nature. That's just human nature. You live there. there I mean, the, the, and I'm sure if I, I – I've often thought about this, especially like nowadays and, and even, even in the 80s. It was probably tough living in Russia – but like when you start getting in the outlying in the rural areas, it's probably just business as usual. You got a shitty government and that's part of your life is like government's shitty. Oh, who are they now? Are they the communists now? Whatever, you know, the czars, whatever. They're, they're all pieces of shit, you know, but you, you, <laughs> you, you have your name, but you still have your neighbors and your family and your traditions and everything. And I mean, everybody's you know to some extent their country is the center of the world when i i just i was really funny i was reading years ago what one of the things mind-blowing moments for me was reading history books from around the world about world war ii 
Yeah, that, that's an eye-opener, isn't it? Uh, yeah, right, where we grew up reading, you know, and then the United States won World War II, but then you start reading other countries, and not that all the other countries were claiming they won World War II, but they weren't all claiming that the U.S. was, they, they were, you know, and the U.S. was, you know, there was the allies with the U.S. and this and this and this, but, like, I would notice, like, throughout Europe textbooks, Russia got a lot of the credit for for being the the ones who who wiped out Hitler in World War II. Whether that's, you know, altogether accurate or not, that was the perception in European history books. Well, More, I mean, and, let's, and, let's and be... it's like weird. I was like, oh, geez, it's just weird not seeing the United States as the center of the of the focus of it. And I think that's what it's like in every every country is just like and they look at the United States as like. Yeah, the United States is good looking, but they're arrogant, you know. I, I don't know. I well, like it here in Poland. The, I mean, the, I, I could sooner see somebody making that argument, at least about the European front, at least in that it was ultimately the Soviets who, uh, who, who subdued Berlin. You know, that was not right. an American operation. That was Soviet. And there are there's an entire school of thought out there that says, you know what, um, that wasn't a good thing at all, because I've read very, very credible reports that we're not talking about German POWs. We're talking about German civilians getting carted off to gulags and stuff like that. That right. is a war crime, you know. Right. I mean, a military target is a German soldier. But, you know, and. I'm not saying it's okay for them either. Nobody deserves to go to a, to a gulag. I don't give a shit what they've done. But, you know, at the very least, you can say, well, they were German soldiers. They are military targets. And so that, you know, maybe we can overlook a few things. But when you start sending civilians to places like that, yeah, I, that's Well, that's you know, it's, it's especially in as you go back in time in war, it's the win winners get away with a lot. You know, the the losers are the ones that get prosecuted for for war crimes. Yeah. And I'm not saying that not rightly so. But, you know, when war happens, pretty much you can pretty much assume that nobody's got their hands clean at some point or the other it's it's who's it's almost like who's trying to take the higher you know who works the hardest to take the higher ground but the higher ground is not always going to be taken in war ever ever it's just you i mean you can find atrocities the united states i'm did in i mean dresden could be you know considered bombing civilians and stuff like that so i i you know what i you know, I'm not trying to upset anybody. I would agree with that. I that's exactly what I think it was. I don't know. I mean, it's uh, Nagasaki it's and Hiroshima. Thing. You know, I mean, it's e it's easy. You can you can you, if you want to focus on anybody, any player in World War Two. Look, I'm not trying to put you on the spot. If you'd rather not answer, that's okay. But do you think Hiroshima and Nagasaki were justified bombings? This needed to happen, uh -huh. or were those in fact war crimes? It's so hard to – well, you know, I mean, if if you're going to uh, uh, – technically, I would say you, you could consider them war crimes. You you, you could – and I, the, the, the problem is you can't go inside of people's minds and souls. So 
I don't, you know, a lot of it has to do and, you know, the road to hell is paved with good intentions. But, you know, I mean, we look back on World War Two because a lot of our historical content was is stuff produced from the United States where it was like, rah, rah, go, go, you know. So it was like, yeah, we got to end this war. I'm not a tactician. I don't know if lives were saved by bombing, you know, I don't know if it, it, it might've been viewed as a purely prag, you know, pragmatic thing to do. Look, we're going to kill civilians, but we're going to end this thing, you know? And, uh, but I don't know how much of it at the same time was like, let's also show people <laughs> it's the last time a nuclear weapons been used in, uh, <laughs> in battle since then which is an amazing thing in human history that a weapon was made and only used once so there might have been that aspect of it too i don't think it was a moral thing to do but you know at this point at this point it's a like a decision that you make in your head i wouldn't if any of the people were alive be like we need to prosecute people over this you know yeah it's I hate Nazis, so I still want to see I still want to see Magneto going out and killing Nazis. But at this point, like, you know, putting people in prison cells over World War Two is almost just it's it's almost pointless. You know, it's symbolic. But yeah, it's the 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 winners get to determine who goes to jail and who hangs for war crimes after a war. I mean, war is a collection of war crimes. It's just, no, there's no other way you can kill people in mass quantities and do it cleanly. I think Star Trek covered that very well in the original Star Trek when they'd cleaned up war and had just people, virtual bomb attacks and people would report to the the chambers for disintegration. Didn't, didn't work out either. Mm. Well, I just wanted to to ask you about that. I mean, it, it is a, I, it, it's a hard it's complicated. question to yeah. give a yes or no to. You know, I mean, yes, technically, do I want to do anything about it? No. <laughs> well, and, and what, honestly, I mean, after so if many. If I was fucking... back there, if I was back there, I would not be able to decisively be like, don't do it. You know, so. Well, and especially you know, just all these decades later, I mean, really. Even if you grant that yes, this was in fact a war crime. Okay, now what? You know. So anyway, right. it's just it, it does it, it does sort of there is a sort of pointlessness to it all. I think, but uh, I'm, I'm glad they made us read Hiroshima in in high school. Horrible as it was, I'm I'm glad that they did. You know, have that perspective. You know, there was a time. <laughs> I shouldn't laugh about this because it it, it really is it, it's not funny. It's not. But I don't uh, even know what you're talking about. I'm sorry. Um, <laughs> <laughs> there were double survivors, believe it or not. Um, talk about you know this is the time to go out and buy some lottery tickets, right? There yeah. were double survivors. Uh, basically, Hiroshima got bombed, and you know there were like ten, ten or twenty people who survived that and were then sent on down to Nagasaki to recover there. And then they survived that. (laughs) And it just kind of makes you think, you know, 
I would not be afraid of anything. No. I mean, you know, I'm, you know, we're talking about people that had, you know, like burns. Some of them actually came through it totally unscathed, but we're talking about the scope of injuries. It basically comes down to like second and third degree, basically various types of, uh, of burns and things like that, but they pretty much got away, you know, unscathed. And then it happened fucking again. And, you know, I truly don't think that I would be afraid of anything or anybody after that. You know, I would have a Trump card for the rest of my life. Anybody who's whining about anything, I'm like, shut up. <laughs> I survived Hiroshima and Nagasaki, and I'm talking to you right now. <laughs> yeah, and like, if you can have a like a really good Trump card, and like, like a friend of mine, that's an it, earned Trump card. <laughs> yeah, it is, and that's not necessarily one that you'd like want to have, but like a friend right. of mine. You know, he would, he, he would uh, hang out and, you know, listen to people who say, yeah, you know, I, you know, I met Michael Jackson and and uh, I met Barack Obama in the 2008 campaign and all this other stuff. And he had the perfect Trump card for any for anybody and everybody. He, it basically said it, it was uh, it consisted of. Let's see. It was seven words and he could dismantle anybody's celebrity story with seven words. Fuck you, buddy. I met Neil Armstrong. Yeah. <laughs> There's nothing. I, I got. I, I. I can't think of anybody. That's it. I mean, who is more? I. I can't think of a way to top that. You know, there is. Yeah. No, oh, there's people that have won Oscars and stuff like that, but I did not walk on the moon. <laughs> and you know, yeah, you know, you wrote a hit song, and aren't you? Just so clever. Uh, motherfucker, I, yep. I I pushed the human race into this inc- totally different world of exploration. Yeah, but, there's you know, somebody hey, you, you, a hit song every day. Yeah, <laughs> but you know, you, you wrote a song, and that's that's cute. Who, you know? Who's on the moon today? Oh, nobody. When's the last time someone was on the moon? Oh, that was a long time ago. It was me, asshole. Anyway, so, yeah. <laughs> it, it Whatever. Anyway, so, yeah. That guy. <laughs> yeah, as far as human achievement goes, those people who've looked back at the Earth are pretty much, as far as I'm concerned, on the apex. You know, that's about, you know, in a in a purely physical way of like where you can go and what you can do. Those are the people who've pushed it. That's pushing it about as as far as you're going to push it. You know. Yeah. At this point, when, well, when people start going to Mars, oh my God, I'm going to worship the ground they walk on. The the, the first people who go to, to go to Mars to either just walk around on it or whatever, I'm going to be, I'm going to like those guys. <laughs> well, uh, that's pretty much all I had for Joseph Stalin, which I guess wasn't as much as I was originally expecting. Uh, do you got anything else for that? Oh, no, not not about that. But I, Joseph Stalin is one of those people. He might surpass bad. <laughs> he yeah, might, he might go into, into evil. Yeah, well, uh, yeah, we're talking about like pure, unapologetic evil at that. Yeah. But yeah. So this my my uh, second story here. This is. Uh, this comes from uh, page 116. This is phrenology. And basically, this sort of feeds into this kind of fascination I have with kind of 
19th century sort of junk science or pseudoscience uh-huh. basically goes a little something, something like this. Different portions of the human brain are responsible for different characteristics. So you might have uh, in, in your upper sort of center right lobe, that's your that's your moral compass. Your, your forward uh, center right uh, lobe is reflectiveness. Your further to the right lobe is, I don't know, um, your temper, you know, fucking just, or, or, or creativity, just fucking whatever. And it was this kind of junk science based on, as far as I can tell, absolutely nothing that caught the public's attention just because of the fact that when you think about it, any kind of brain science is going to be revolutionary, whether it's true or not, just because of the fact that man now has the ability to begin studying something. And any brand new field of study, history shows us, any brand new field of study typically starts off with, I would say, almost no truth to it whatsoever. Right. And this doesn't seem to be very much of an exception. This is how science exists in a dearth of information. <laughs> well, no, this is how science starts. You you start right. with asking questions. You refine your methods. You then you then you okay. Well, that you often start by debunking something. Yeah. And finding something in the in the process of it, but this was this was at a point, and uh, this was when like around in my area, spiritualism was starting to take hold. Oh yeah. There was all and and. Uh, you know, all so this was when you got cocaine solution in a in a at the at the drugstore, you know, to to energy, you know, healthful energy. It was a medicine, and you, the, there was not the technology to start figuring out neurons and cells and so nobody knew how anything worked. So you could sell the public on anything that you could explain that sort of pieced together in some sort of pseudo logic, you know? Yeah. And if you said it's like, Hey, your brain, certain parts of your brain determine this and this people go like, Hey, you know, that kind of makes sense. Okay. Cause blah, blah, blah. And, and I can determine And once you say that, and probably the, the first few people who were touching people's heads and reading their, their um, brain through their phrenology were probably just telling people exactly what they wanted to hear, which made people go, you know what? They're right. <laughs> I am a great person. Well, I kind of am noble and, and, and honest. Well, you've seen those, those internet personality quizzes. And I don't mean those yeah. silly ones. I mean like the ones that proclaim themselves to be a little bit more credible. Yeah. You know, based on, you know, like your favorite color, you must be a big Star Trek fan or something like that, you know, and you've, you've got a very keen scientific acumen and bullshit like that. And I kind of regard this as being the equivalent. Yes. Because, I mean, it was, it, you know, in the 70s, people asked, you know, what's your sign? As if that, I mean, honestly, I'm not, I've never been prepared to assign that much authority. There are still so many people who... I watch I watch young girls in the early parts of talking about, you know, a guy that they're thinking of dating. They're checking out astrology books to see if they're compatible and all that. Oh, he's a typical Aquarius on and on. 
Mm. Not going to date a Sagittarius. Mm. There's, it's still happening. Well, it's just it, it to me. It's to you. You want to talk about a junk science, geez? But <laughs> yeah. Um, but people were making very similar sort of, I guess, social decisions based on this completely fucking fake, arbitrary pseudoscience, <laughs> and you know, it's one of those things that ultimately you don't need to say anything about it. Time is going to be the real. I, I guess the the real judge of, of of this sort of junk science, and that in today, you know, this sort of bullshit non-science, just horseshit, is it, it's pretty much the domain now of you know fortune tellers and tarot readers and you know silly shit like that, and no one really takes this takes this seriously anymore. And I think the reason for that is because this presented itself as being a little bit more of a hard science, and we eventually discovered, no, in fact, it isn't. I think the reason the Zodiac stays around is because of the fact that it is manifestly and unapologetically a sort of subjective type of pseudoscience. You can't really say for sure that it's not true, but... Phrenology, on the other hand, made ob- ob- objective claims about the nature of the human brain that are either true or they are not true. And it's a little bit more of a black and white type of outcome that you can that you can reach with that. Whereas shit like the Zodiac, not not really, you know, because no one can say, you know, you can't change the day of uh, of your birth so that you can compare your personality then as to now. No one knows. I personally don't believe it, but I can't factually dispute it. Make sense? Yeah. You you can put up scientific um, arguments against it by saying, ah, well, you know, the pull of the um, of the planets is so negligible that there's, you know, you could prove there there have been people who've done all of that, but. The, the thing about it is it has so much – it's so ingrained in our culture. And the people who really get into it, you know, I've had people, you know, um, do my do my reading. But the people who really get into it, they need to know exactly what time you were born. And oh, yeah. they'll find the hospital and they'll tra- track it out, you know, and, and find out your, your, your longitude and latitude – and they put that and they put that they have equations to plug all of that into, which makes it feel way more legit. You know, it's just like, look, here's here's the stuff they worked out all due to the and, you know, you, oh, yeah. Well, you know, people what month you were born in. That's just that's just the junk science astrology. You have to know where you were and the exact minute to when you were born and blah, blah, blah. And that way you can really, and you have to know your rising sign and your falling sign, all that, you know, bullshit. And it's very similar to tarot cards, where you lay out the tarot cards and it's an inkblot test. You, if you're good at reading someone's personality, and and everybody's good at projecting, and and you have the person there projecting whatever's on their mind into their 
into their astrology reading, into their tarot card reading. You can it's 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 a very sort of just like folksy version of psychology mm-hmm. of going to the psychiatrist or something to where you're just talking you you you're basically talking stuff out with somebody. <laughs> yeah, and which could be good. Phrenology is less so of that though. It's more of just somebody plunking someone something on your head. One of my prized possessions is I have a and I'm I want to get a an a a, a a real for mine. I don't want to say mine isn't real. I have a crude phrenology head. I haven't figured out what mine, what the origin of mine is, but it's a handmade clay head, hmm. and the sections on top of it are sort of actually to to sort of bring astrology into it. They're sort of it's sectioned off very much like astrological stuff is sectioned off. But it, you know, it's a, a circle in the middle with with spokes coming out of it and others and circles around it. Uh, but no astrological symbols on there. It's just sort of like the broken up into sections like that. And uh, but I'd like to get one that they. I mean, they used to have them in in when you go into the doctor's office and they were, you know, they were mass produced and they're 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 really neat. They're you know a human head face with a face on it and. Just like in in this comic, it's sectioned off and it's like goodwill and you know kind thoughts, evil thoughts. Hmm. It's it's wonderful. I'd love to have. I need one of those in my collection. They go for a really pretty penny on eBay. <laughs> I'll bet. Mine. I have no idea what mine was. Mine might have been a prop for something. It might have been from some you know. Or it might have been like somebody doing fortune telling or something like that. I'd uh, I'll, I'll, I'll snap a picture of it. It's creepy as hell. <sighs> well, that's uh, basically what I've got for the uh, for the uh, phrenology. Do you, um, do you have anything else, or do you are you ready to move on with your choices? No, I think I bu- I, I said about all I can say about phrenology. <laughs> the first time I heard about it, I guess the only thing I can think about phrenology. The first time I heard about it was I have this friend named Bill Moon, and when he was in college, he was an engineering major, which means you never see engineering majors because they're always studying. But when we did see him, he was always very lively and very, and he was he was touching everybody's heads, and we're, we're like, what are you doing? He's like, phrenology. You ever heard of phrenology? It's the study of finding someone's character by the lumps on their head. <laughs> and we were like, how quirky. All right. My first one, we're going all the way to page 156 for disaster movies, which upon first reading, I was thinking, okay, Irwin Allen, you know, The Towering Inferno. And and it's a little um, – the, the title is a little uh, misleading because it's really movies that were quote-unquote disasters. It's, yes. it's more like flops. And um, – what struck me is this, is, is this is definitely, I could tell this was written in the 90s because it's talking about stuff from the, you know, the decades just before the 90s that were all when I was growing up. So I remember hearing about all these on the news. And of course, the first one they cover is the one that everybody wants to bring up, which is Heaven's Gate, the Michael Cimino movie. Yes. And uh, 
which I remember was just torn through the ringer. But, um, and then the opposite of it, which was uh, One from the Heart, which was, that was a movie that Coppola messed up on his own. Um, the first of many, one could say. <laughs> yeah, G- Gates have, G- yeah, but he messed it up whereas he didn't make money. He might have messed up some movies after that, but he's been pretty successful at the box office anyway since then. But um, Heaven's Gate, you know, when when it happened was just like, oh, the, you know, this movie, they spent all this time and money on it and it was late and and now it comes out and it's awful. And that was the narrative. Oh, the, you know, this is just a terrible movie. I could barely stand it. And uh, the reason was it had half of its content cut out of it. And uh, it was more of a... a I, I think a story about the studios not having faith in the direct, you know, in the director and being like, you can't put out a three and a half hour movie and blah, blah, blah. And then, and then making him cut it to two hours. So then it doesn't make sense. And then all the critics go, Oh, this movie doesn't make sense. The same thing happened to uh, once upon a time in America. Mm-hmm. Whereas if you watch the two hour once upon a time in America, it does not make any sense. You watch the four hour and all of a sudden you're watching the godfather you know you're watching that level of filmmaking and epicness but the the studios were like nobody's going to want to watch a movie that long you have to cut it in half and ruined it and then the filmmaker is is presented as a as an ass when the movie fails and uh the other movies they got in here they got uh 1940 what was it 1941 mm-hmm. uh the spielberg the spielberg's, movie. spielberg's flop yep. um star trek the motion picture that's which where I, I have to get off the bus that's before. why this made my list that's the that's the thing that's pissing me off star trek the motion picture was not a flop star trek the motion picture was not even that ill received by the critics and by the fans Star Trek The Motion Picture did pretty damn good. It just wasn't Star Wars. That's which is all... what they wanted. Well, yeah, which is what they wanted. It was noted, oh, this movie's long, it's slow, it's, you know, it's not Star Wars. They're pushing the special, you know, they're pushing special effects over story, blah, blah, blah. And then they were, you know, at first it was like, oh, no, no story, too many special effects. Then over time it was just like, it's just boring and there's too much just draggy science fictiony story to it and it's like this movie that's got slag it did really well at the box office and now well and let's take the other there was one from the heart heaven's gate water world all these movies except for one one from the heart have sort of held an ishtar too mm-hmm Ishtar is getting love now. I've never seen Ishtar, but people are like, Ishtar's not a bad movie. It's actually a, it's actually a really good movie. And that's pretty much where all Heaven's Gate has, you know, been since people have been able to see the original cut and are like, and it's almost, it's in a, a semi masterpiece considered 1941. Yeah, it's not perfect, but it's not a, a horrible movie. Um, Waterworld, people even like Waterworld for some reason. Well, for me, it comes down to Gene Triplehorn. But <sighs> look, I'm not trying to drag Scott Gardner into things that have nothing to do with him. But I sat down, it was a couple weeks ago, I sat down and watched 
rewatch. If it has to do with Star Trek the motion picture, it has to do with Scott Gardner. Okay, well, fair enough. I rewatched it, and my thesis is this. And if you think I'm wrong, I want you to say so. Okay. You could take Star Trek the motion picture exactly what it is right now. And again, you you kind of mentioned it a second ago. Most people say, well, the movie just moves too slow, fucking blah, blah, blah. But you could take that movie exactly as it is right now and change almost nothing. Here's the thing. Just change the order of scenes. There's this moment where Kirk finally lands basically on Earth. And we're Mm -hmm. talking like this is a good 15 or some odd minutes into the movie, right? Mm -hmm. And we've had virtually no dialogue. And what little dialogue we have had, most of it has not been in English, right? But there's just not been very much dialogue. And so Kirk, about, I don't know, 10 or 15 minutes into the movie, he finally lands on Earth. And he has this kind of, it's not funny, but it is this kind of fun, sort of humorous and light kind of dialogue scene with somebody. And it it has a little bit of life to it, you know? And then uh, people are talking to each other. They're given a little bit of exposition. Well, you know, shit is going on. And there's, there's this force out there that's fucking destroying everything. And holy shit, you know, Kirk, you're our only hope. Get out there and fix this, you know? And my theory is that if you had started the movie off that that way and then shown everything in the movie like before that time, kind of like as a flashback, well, this is what we think happened. And then you see the exact same bullshit that we've that you see in the first ten minutes of the movie, after you have like people talking to each other. My my theory is that movie would be a lot more well liked. It's just the fact that you have this movie that what little dialogue there is for the first 10 or so minutes is in not even a foreign language, a completely fictional language, mm-hmm. mostly. There, I mean, there's a little bit of English, but not very much. And, you know, no one knows just what the fuck is going on. And by modern standards, you know, the eye candy factor of what's going on with, you know, the ships and, you know, the laborious amount of time. So, somebody spent a lot of time getting those models and those effect shots. Oh, yeah. Perfect. For their time, perfect. It's just that today I don't think people are as easily impressed with that. And no, so, it's – you have to – it it was made in a way that they didn't make movies anymore. It was made in a way – that might have been ill-advised, but I love that way. <laughs> I love it, it. I don't think laborious. I think slow, <laughs> but it's almost like a template for your imagination. They're inviting you by 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 just laying it out and letting it sit. They're they're wanting you to stare at it, not just stare at it and go, "That's pretty." Because if you if you want to just do that, keep it moving quickly. They want you to think about it. They want you to sit there and th- be a science fiction guy and be like, well, the scale of that would be like, wow, that's really big. You know, and and stuff like that. And people were not in the mood for that per se then because of Star Wars. But another thing about this movie that a lot of people forget is when it it's when we watch it now, it's not in the same context as when it came out when it came out and especially and i'm sure it was for the older people too but for someone my age 
it was one of those things. I never thought it was going to happen because there were the rumors of it. As a as a regular TV Star Trek fan, there were the rumors of working on a movie, working on a new TV thing, and then you would read the next month in the magazine, ah, it's been put off for a year or two. And, yeah, yeah, uh, I remember. Sure. And a year or two is is never when you're that age. And then you had the adult fans at the time who'd been working and working and and set, and having the having their fan, you know, building this fandom that the only other thing like it was maybe Lord of the Rings, you know, that yeah. that sci-fi fandom. And they were when when Star Trek the Motion Picture came out, you're talking a slow movie for general moviegoer. General moviegoer sounds like somebody from the army, but uh, uh, maybe a wrestling <laughs> guy. But um, uh, but for the Star Trek fan, oh my God, I want to. I'd be ha- six hours. Make it six hours long. I'll, I'll take a shot. You could just take the camera and walk through the Enterprise with just people walking around doing their business and I would have watched it because it's new the trek, urge right? the urge to be in that world in that universe it was so huge at that time and and people had given up so many times on seeing those characters again and seeing the enterprise again and seeing a new story that when it happened I think they they wanted to, there was an aspect that they wanted to milk it you know, I mean, Gene Roddenberry's a grandiose guy, mm-hmm. but there's also they wanted to give people here we go. We'll give you a movie. It's going to be a big, fat sci-fi movie. I think they wanted to be the pop version of 2001, although I would argue that 2001 is a pop movie. But they wanted to be a more uh, they wanted to play on the realistic aspect of 2001 and the psychedelic aspect but to leave the psychedelic aspect grounded right in science you know the inside of V'ger is super psychedelic you're inside yeah. of an alien intelligence you're, you're basically taking a psychedelic journey through their brain and but there's a there is a scientific explanation for it there's a flesh and blood solid re- not flesh and blood <laughs> silicon and uh, and metal reason for it and yes. and uh, and uh, happening for it and it was an idea that was done in the tv show but this took it to a bigger level you know it took it to a a little little more grand level and i mean as a little kid it was a little slow but i mean i was I loved it. I was in the movie theater loving it. There were a few points where I was like, this is a little cheesy, like the wormhole was a little cheesy to me. But that was just because I was right off of Star Wars, you know. Mm. But at the same time, watching watching Spock come up on screen was, you know, that was a big deal. <laughs> Well, I mean, the, the, the way crowd I see- cheered in the theater when when uh, any of the characters appeared. That there was, you know, this warm burst of applause when everybody showed up. Well, and that actually is a is a angle I didn't know. Actually, I I never I'd never heard that. But look, I've heard a lot of criticisms about Star Trek the motion picture, and to me, 
it's it's almost like it's missing the forest for the trees in a little bit because of the fact that uh, I'm just going to take this from the beginning. All right. Now, my view of Star Trek is that at its most pure, right, at the core of what Star Trek is, I'm not trying to insult anything else, but I'm just going to say that to me, Trek at its purest is always going to be the original series. Specifically, the first two seasons, you know, to mm-hmm. me, that's that is Star Trek. And that's what everything else has to measure up to. But as I say that, what I have to acknowledge is that Gene Roddenberry was an executive producer on that show. I don't know how many episodes he personally wrote, but I would I would venture that a probably a mathematical majority of episodes were written by somebody else. So right, right. there, you're a step away from what the original creator originally intended and then on top of all and as far as what he wrote there was a lot of stuff that he got credit for writing where he just came up with the basic story idea or he would write a script but by the time it made it to the screen better writers had (laughs) had a chance to fix it up and stuff a lot of the pure roddenberry episodes are some of the weaker trek episodes really when it works out to drama and and you know, they're they're a lot of the times are the most preachy and awkward ones. Yeah, and and, and I'll, I'll ride with that. But he was so idea. There's... He was more of ideas than him. Actually, he was better to have the ideas and have somebody else execute it. You know, yeah. producer. That's a born producer. And once the script is finished and it gets hammered out, now you have to deal with the realities of producing this stuff. For TV, so that's another another barrier that you're up against, and not just TV, but TV in the 1960s. So there's now another barrier that you're up against, on and on and on. All right, and so again, I'm not trying to talk down the original series because to me that's definitive. But I'm just saying that there were, if people wanted to say that's not necessarily Star Trek in the in the purest way that Gene Roddenberry conceived it. I'm going to listen to that argument. Whereas think, the motion yeah, I picture... I think Next Generation is that in general, in, in the pure Star Trek and, and and the motion picture. Yeah, I would exactly. say the motion picture and Next Generation are the most like science fiction-y. Um, and the Next Generation was more of like Roddenberry's vision of what the world was like. But that's still... But still that still doesn't necessarily make him the best Trek. <laughs> well, and I get that, but I'm, I'm a big believer. Well, nah, I, let me rephrase that. I'm not a big believer in the auteur theory, but I do want to give artists and creative types a, as, a, about as much of a blank canvas as I can, because I think that can be not necessarily the best art, but that can be some of the most innovative art. Mm-hmm. And when you start talking about, Star Trek at its purest, most heavy and dense sci-fi best, there's a very strong argument that this, that Star Trek the motion picture is the closest Gene Roddenberry ever got, at least as far as feature film, to Star Trek as he personally saw it. Definitely in feature film. Definitely in feature film. Because of that one thing, I mean, I'm not going to... I'm I'm not going to, you know, ignore what other people say that, you know, the, the movie has this weakness or that could have been done better. You know what? To me, all, none of that stuff really matters because 
in the same way that the Star Wars prequels are kind of George Lucas unleashed, I would say that the motion Star Trek the motion picture is Gene Roddenberry unleashed. Now, whether or not you yeah. like that is almost beside the point. The fact is he got it. And yeah, no, I mean, Star Wars makes me think of Flash Gordon and Buck Rogers and Star Trek the motion picture makes me think of um, Isaac Asimov and Arthur C. Clarke and stuff like that. You know, it makes me think of classic speculative science fiction, you know. And uh, how are you how is anyone going to have a problem with that? I mean, if you don't like it, then just fucking don't watch it. I mean, go watch Wrath of Khan again. All right. I love Wrath of Khan. That's a great movie. But you can't – to me, it just it just seems wrongheaded to – Pure science fiction has got to – it has got to be met with imagination. That's what makes it – that's what gives it a, the appeal. It works with if, – if, if you're – I don't want to say if you're, high, if you're not imaginative, but if you're not using your – you know, an action movie – is less about your imagination and more about stimulating, you know, entertainment. And, you know, you can go to the extremes of like a Tarkovsky movie where you have 10 minute shots where hardly anything moves and you really have to engage your imagination. Yeah. (laughs) But, but then you have stuff in the middle, like, like Star Trek or some slower moving, um, science fiction movies like more recently like Moon, you know, that slow compared to say Star Wars or something. But you know, they're they're more about you thinking about the situation and like if you just sort of watch the movie without thinking about it, you're watching stuff happen. But then say like good science like um um oh what was the movie with uh, Sandra Bullock in it? Gravity. Gravity, where the, the, the strength in that movie was that it illustrated to you just how vulnerable you are in space, just how limited all your options of getting up, getting down, doing what you have to do and staying alive in space are. And when those options get narrowed down, you're just really screwed. And by the way they illustrated it and stuff, you were you you were thinking about things like um, the, the amount of the, the speed that somebody was traveling, the amount of inertia they had, you know, scientific stuff. But it was they were smart to put it in in an action movie context, and and it worked as as science fiction because a lot of what made you, I mean, it's Sandra Bullock. So a lot of what made you like have to sympathize with Sandra Bullock is you're just like, as a human, you're like, oh my God, she's screwed. She's screwed. And, and she had to use like common sense and science to, to get herself out of the situation. It's, and that's what, that's why that movie was, was a bigger deal than a lot of other sort of movies like it at the time because it engaged people on that level on top of the visceral level of this is really cool. And that's what be- good science fiction does at best. I just don't think it's in fashion right now. I, I still th- I think it's in fashion enough to uh, maybe The Martian will help with that. Maybe The Martian will will make people want more stuff like that. Well, the thing is, we're getting into territory now with 
media, be it film or TV or just whatever else that people are doing, where, you know, All in the Family made its bones by being a very broad, uh, having a very broad audience, you know, like mass audiences and all of this shit. These days, everything is about niches, finding niches, creating niches, you know, and to me, there's no logical reason, especially since effects, you know, like visual effects and whatnot, CGI and, 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 and whatnot, that stuff is not as cost prohibitive these days as it was, right. I would say, even 15 years ago. Yeah. And the quality, there's just no comparison, you know? And to me, you know, this stuff can be manufactured at a fairly low cost, I would imagine. And there's really no good reason to not have this huge diversity of material to work with now, you know? In five years, you're going to be able to make Phantom Menace on your laptop. I'm not even being hyperbolic. I'm betting in five years the technology to do that level. And I mean you conceivably could do the make the phantom menace on your laptop now it would just take you 20 years of rendering to to really do it but you could do it with a laptop probably and and uh and all that but in like five years it'll be like ah, i'll just you know whip up this model okay i wanted to go from here and here and it'll be this like yeah and uh you know and i i want it i want it photo accurate up to an inch you know and then they'll it'll put grid on it and and all that and it'll just be part of every day yeah it's getting cheaper and cheaper it's getting closer and closer to where you can make lawrence of arabia on <laughs> a very low, on a low budget <laughs> yeah i would think yeah most of your cost is going to be just shooting the shit yeah now, the other thing about, you know, this whole idea of a disaster movie is that I understand that there's a certain amount of snark, you know, in a uh, in a little two-page sort of story like this. Yeah. And, you know, obviously we've exposed one of the inaccuracies, I think, with Star Trek, the motion picture. But another one that I swear to God, it's like I'm the only one who remembers this, you know, Titanic. Oh. You know, everybody expected Titanic to be the biggest box office disaster. They, yeah, and that was mostly because of Waterworld. Yeah, like Titanic no, was was sh- there. I mean, that was the news stories were like, it's late again, and it's just surpassed Waterworld and the amount of money that it, that's gone down the, you know, sunk to the bottom of the ocean. <laughs> you know, yeah. And yeah, no, nobody, literally nobody believed in in, in this movie and. Of all things, what turned the – or let me rephrase that. What helped turn the tide on that was the internet. You know, uh, Basically, there were a few true believers. They said, look, if it – their attitude – I remember reading this stuff. Their attitude was if it was anybody other than James Cameron. That was, that was me. I was like, James Cameron's done pretty. He's done a pretty good job so far, and if he's putting this much thought and energy into a movie about the Titanic, all I'm all I was thinking was the later this is and the more over budget it is, the more attention to detail is going. To, is, that just means there's he's pay he's paying attention to detail to the detriment of the Hollywood money, 
but that's okay with me. You know, that's, but you know, I mean, basically like before that you were listening to his investors griping <laughs> yeah, and then getting onto TV and everybody just got, you know, it was almost like they were putting pressure on James Cameron to get the goddamn thing done by slagging him in the news. Yeah. And like, keep in mind that this stuff was all happening kind of in a vacuum in the, the public had not seen one frame of this movie. And so what I was expecting was a sort of pseudo-documentary, meditative type of uh, analysis of what went on. I was basically expecting the JFK version of Titanic, oh. you know? And I thought, well, I can't imagine how this movie is going to make money, but I'm at, at the same time, I do I do not bet against Jim Cameron. I just fucking don't do it. It's there, there was a lot of Leo DiCaprio. There still is. But at that point, there were a lot of people hated Leo DiCaprio, too. And that was an, an a, people were just like, oh, and it's going to have that guy in it, too. You know, so. Yeah. And it was just it was not known at that time what it was going to be. But basically what I was not expecting and apparently nobody else was expecting either was a sort of golden age of Hollywood type of Valentine to not just that mm -hmm. era of filmmaking. But a little bit to the uh, – going a little bit further back in time to – not exactly a Valentine to the Gilded Age, but not really a critique of it either, you know? Right. I don't it's really – it, it took that thing where it was a presentation of I, – I, it was sort of what I expected. I didn't expect the story and characters to be as compelling as they ended up being, which is what – drove it because i was like oh whatever dicaprio but he did a really good job in it and um but i expected it to be like that sort of um you know um all in company that just sort of not like stanley kubrick but stanley kubrick had a, a lot of it just the cold eye you know yeah it's it's not a a, a judgment although there was I mean, he did definitely work in a story about class, you know, class distinctions and use the Titanic as, uh, uh, you know, there's uh, I don't even know if he used it as a metaphor because it just sits right there as where, you know, the poorer you are, the lower you were in the ship. And and by being, you know, as as accurate as he was, I'm not going to say he was completely accurate because. I'm, I'm sure Scott Gardner could tell you a lot better than I can where he was inaccurate, but there was a lot of like, ah, let those guys drown, <laughs> you know? Yeah. So that was sort of baked into the story. So I don't know if that was James. K he, he, he pushed it by having it, a you know, the, the main relationship between the, the, the girl choosing rich and her rich boyfriend and him and, and and all that, but that's just, but that's a very standard Hollywood story, like you say. And you you ended up with this throwback of where it it didn't it didn't go modern as it, it could have gone bloodier, it could have had could have gone sexier or whatever. The, I mean, the the thing about it is the bare breast in the in the movie was sort of quaint, you know? Yeah. It was sort of like, oh, there's some nudity. I wasn't expecting that. But it's kind of like this tasteful, draped nudity. Th it was it was very well done. And uh, 
it gave it gave something for the people who were really into the Titanic, but then it ended up, you know, the main thing about it was the love story. I think is what I think it really appealed to women. Oh yeah, <laughs> and you ended up with you know women going to it for the love story repeatedly, and uh, you know a classic. It's like Gone with the Wind in the, in a lot of ways. You know, uh, a love story set against uh, a historic event or events. Well, this is one of the few movies, Titanic, it's one of the few movies I can think of where I walked out of it and said there is literally no other time in, in, in history when you could have made this movie. Right. Because you could not have made a movie with that kind of scope and scale to it. And as realistic as the effects were, which by modern standards, not very, but for as realistic as they were, you could not have done even that back in the 80s. And then you get into the 2000s when, yeah, you know, that type of technology had really been advanced, due at least in part to Titanic. But you wouldn't there, – there were fewer survivors of the golden age of Hollywood still around to put in that movie. So I forget the lady's name, but the woman who plays elderly Kate Winslet. Yeah. I think she died by that time by uh, like the 2000s and so you couldn't have made it then either you had to have that sweet spot in the 90s when technology allowed you to do this and a golden age actress could come out of retirement to do the job and 10 years earlier 10 years later it wouldn't have been possible but james cameron knew this moment in cinema history is never coming again and he went for it and for that alone just for having you know recognizing I guess where he stood in history and making the most of it in, in terms of filmmaking, he's always going to have my respect. Now is the guy an egomaniac prick jerk, you know, tyrant, you know, what? <laughs> I, likely it appears that way. <laughs> yeah. It's, it, it, it sure looks that way, but all I can do is, is, is judge the product. And, you know, I regard yeah. James Cameron's, uh, let's see, uh, there's the Terminator, there's Terminator two, there's true lies, there's Titanic and maybe a couple of other movies he's done that I think are some of the some of the best that have ever come out of Hollywood. And it's just, it's not, and, and even when you start getting into shit like, you know, Avatar and whatnot, to me, that just kind of goes to the point. The guy, he's got this gift of knowing what it is that audiences are going to respond to. I think Avatar gets too much hate. I don't think it it's something you should roll on your back and piss on yourself over but it i mean i had i I had a very good movie going experience seeing it this the story was lacking but it was it was a a decent basic story to lay on it was basically a tour through a world and it was also sort of a uh pushing forward of the 3d effect so it was a ride movie you know it was a disney ride movie and as such it worked really well. It brought you into that world and it gave you the story. It just wasn't something, you know, I think I watched it once more, like when it came out on DVD and I just have had no interest in ever seeing it again, <laughs> but I don't have bad, bad thoughts about it. You know, I've just never given so, a damn about it. I'm, I'm just going to be real with you. I've never cared, but it's just like Scott Gardner's never seen it. He's just never he's been just like, eh, not interested. And I and I was sort of like that too, but I was like, I really want to check out the 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 new three D. 
And I remember sitting in the movie theater going, this is the new 3D is very well done. I, it's it was even it was interesting enough on a technological level to to enjoy it. And the story was was good enough to make me go like, OK, this isn't just a big jerk off. And it had Sigourney Weaver in it, which always is a plus for me. Mm. Well, it's just that Cameron is is one of those directors that comes along who he never gets overwhelmed by his own bullshit, at least in terms of making the film. He doesn't get yeah. overwhelmed with, you know, the technology of, oh, look, I'm not, I can do this. And, and look how cool this he, – he's not that guy. you know. Avatar he, walked the edge of it, but it did not go over into self – it might have been self-indulgent in parts, but in general, it was well-conceived, well-written, well-executed. You know, mm-hmm. it, there was care put into it and – it worked. Yeah. As what it was. Yeah. It's just to me, he's one of he's one of the great talents, you know, in Hollywood. And when you think about it, how many people in Hollywood can you really say like and I and I speak here of directors, you know, how many people in Hollywood are there where you can say, you know, this guy is one of the greats? And you know, and I mean people who are in the business right now, you know, this very moment. I really enjoy – I'm apparently the lone voice in the wilderness on this one. I really enjoy Zack Snyder's films. I I think he has – he understands something, you know, about just making a movie that's fun. Are you watch. trolling me? No. No. I mean, believe me, I know very well who I'm talking to here, but it's just – and I'm not trying to set you off or anything, but it's just – you know, when I went to see Sucker Punch – Uh-huh. I'm not going to sit here and say, oh, this is the greatest movie ever. But, you know, it was basically what I I'm, I'm I'm not exaggerating when I say it. I went to see that movie in theaters specifically because I wanted to see a bunch of women running around in their underwear, getting into fights and, and doing all this. Just you got it. You and, got it. And I don't under what, what I guess I don't get is why is it wrong for. A filmmaker, and it can be Zack Snyder if that's what you want, or it can be somebody else, just whatever. Why is it wrong for a filmmaker to just make a movie that's just fun to watch? Eye candy? Yeah, you know, and it doesn't have to mean something, you know? I mean, Uh, look, there are a lot of movies out there that mean something, and they definitely mean a lot to me. But Sucker Punch, and I would say a lot of Zack Snyder's movies, not so much Watchmen, but a lot of his movies, to me, they're they're just fun to watch. And Sucker Punch is... It's just it, to me, I don't give a shit what the story's really about to me. It's about these hot girls that are running around in their underwear shooting not just guns, but these fucking impossible massive cannons. And they're and they're getting into these impossible sword fights and stuff like that. It's just as, as it's eye just, candy. If you want to take I mean, my <laughs> it's okay. junk food entertainment, sir. I mean, you know, my first experience. Well, my first experience with Zack Snyder was the the um dawn of the dead remake which i really liked i walked out of the movie with a friend we went there expecting we were both big romero fans and horror horror aficionados and we were going there to be like okay this let's tear this up and we we walked out going hey you know what i accept this movie yeah it's not it's not up in the pantheon of romero's but it doesn't disturb the the legacy of those movies are and it, and as its own thing it does what it does everything after that has made me want to punch him in the f- i went to 300 with three of my friends who walked out of it like woohoo that was the most beautiful thing 
I ever saw. And I was just looking at him going, I had no idea that you guys were so gay. <laughs> <You're> like, <laughs> the, the, the way that they were sweating and re- and I'm just like, that was like that was like the weirdest like sublimated gay porn I've ever seen in my life. And <laughs> it's true. <laughs> but but my, my and but I had read the comics of 300 and my my um, my summation of the movies was exactly the same as the comic. Pretty to look at. Not a lot going on there at all. You know, a lot going on is in things are flying and and happening. But, you know, the major theme of it is. Stated and then pounded in for the rest of the, the thing. And then and then when we got to uh, and I was not a big critic of um, of Watchmen either. But at the same time, I fucking love I will defend that movie to the death. Yeah, I I will say it's not a travesty Zack Snyder film, but it was where I discovered what it was about Zack Snyder as a filmmaker that I don't like. And I think he I don't think he understands people. <laughs> I think he's like almost like autistic or something where he gets the techni like the 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 thing that make made Watchmen a decent movie was boy the source material is really good and he stuck to it closely you know there were made there were some major changes decisions made to do stuff and but for the most part it was uh, it was it was stick right to the material and the material's strong so if you get some decent actors who can say their lines well and you give them the lines out of the comic, you're going to get, um, and plus his visual style of comic come to life. And it was, and the slow down cinematography and stuff was relatively new at that point. You had something interesting and his obvious love of doing music video stuff with retro music was yeah, he pretty much wears that on his sleeve, doesn't he? <laughs> it was interesting and new. So it, uh, but I remember going like, emotionally did nothing for me. You know, there was no emotional center. It was as it, it was a a good, literal ad- adaptation on the screen. Everything else he's done after that has been just like face palm. I mean, I think Man of Steel was the closest thing he made to a real movie so far since since watchmen but sucker punch was one of, yeah i mean i have a media masochist on sucker punch yeah i it, it angered me and because it had pretensions of saying something it wasn't it was just let me show some girls in underwear but he was trying to push it as some sort of feminist thing or a critique of people who look at stuff like that but if you're going to critique people who look at stuff like that, there's movies, you know, those movies, you come out feeling punched in the face. You, if you're going to punch your audience in the face and saying, like, this is the way you objectify women and look at them and you're doing it right now, you got to that's that's some master filmmaking right there. You have to make people walk out of the screen and go, holy shit, I didn't you know. Uh, uh, you got to do something to knock it home, and he didn't do it. He just present. It was like it was like a series of cutscenes from a, 
um, like a video game. Video game. Yeah. It was. It, it was literally just played through. I was like, uh, about halfway through, I'm like, all right, we're just pl- we're doing a playthrough. So you know, I got ten minutes till the next next set piece comes up, and they were just that that the his look just is it's pretty to look at, but it always feels canned canned and processed heavily processed to me and it reminds me of other artists i know who are all about the process and the technology behind it and they just have no inkling of the spark of life that goes in stuff Zack snyder <laughs> mm. but hey you know if you like him hey that's that's fine man <laughs> not judging or anything, but the guy's yeah. kind of a shithead. You need to know that. I mean, I'm not making any conclusions about you, but <laughs> sure. Okay. <laughs> That's good. But, uh, um, well. I'm, I'm actually, I'm actually more optimistic for the new movie than I was for, for Man of Steel. So we'll, we'll, we'll see. Now that I did not see coming, but all right. Uh, I saw, even in the ridiculous Luther performance, I saw at least some signs of life. Some signs of characters, of character moments, you know, humor, humor and characters reacting to each other as as characters reacting to each other. So I, I'm thinking maybe there's been some Ben Affleck scriptwriter tinkering and maybe even some Ben Affleck uh, working with the actors type thing or something. It's, we'll see. We'll see. That's coming. It's coming. <laughs> Indeed, it is. Yeah. So and and the the internet fun that comes with it is coming. All right. Uh, guys, just for clarity's sake, um, Honeywell and I are, are record. This episode is coming out after Batman v Superman has hit theaters, but we're recording oh. obviously before. So that's if if our little discussion there makes no sense to you, just keep that in mind. No one, yeah, <laughs> no one's seen the movie yet, so we don't know what we're what we're in for one way or the other. So. Right. Hopefully that makes sense. Now, I guess to do you have anything else about God? That was a hell of a tangent with disaster movies. But yeah, yeah. No, about? I think I think I think we're done with the disaster movies. Okay, cool. So what's the other one? The next one is the Pope of Trash on page one hundred and sixty. All right. What do we got? John Waters, one of my all-time heroes ever. I love, love, love me some John Waters. Love his movies. Um, the the first John Waters movie I saw, of course, was the infamous Pink Flamingos. Oh, you know what? Mm. No, it was Pink Flamingos. And then the next one was um, was the one with Tab Hunter in it that I can't recall the name of it quite off the top of my head right now. Um, but um, Polyester that was the second one, and uh. A friend in high school, her father was a videotape collector, and he was he was psycho. He was sort of like the guy in American Beauty, <laughs> but he was he was an obsessive. He had one of the first VCRs, and he had a copy of Pink Flamingos, and I watched it and was just like, oh my god, you know that I just could not. I'd read about it, but I just could not believe that like somebody put that movie together and put it out. And then as I started learning more about John Waters, I got into when I, the, uh, my freshman year of college. I remember my first trip to the school library. Mm-hmm. I was in the film section. And John Waters' awesome first book, Shock Value, was there. And I sat down in the library and read it cover to cover, the whole book. 
just basically his stories of how he made his his early movies. This was before before um, you know the modern era with Ricky Lake and you know Crybaby and and um, I keep wanting to say polyester, but whatever the the one with Ricky Lake and Divine in it that was a huge hit that was made into a Broadway play and then the remake with with uh, <laughs> with John Travolta in the Divine role. Uh, you're honestly you're asking the wrong guy. I have I know nothing about uh, John Waters oh. in his films. So oh dear all God, of this you is... need to see John Waters movies. You need to see Cecil B. Demented would would probably be more would be or Serial Mom. Oh, Serial Mom is a great. He, he, there's two points. There's his transgressive era where he was you know using all his friends and having divine and just trying to be as as tasteless and offensive as possible and then there's his pg era and and dipping into light r like serial mom where he was a pop star and both eras are are wonderful like the movie female trouble is one of the most beautifully filmed movies like color wise and scene composition wise mm-hmm. i when i saw first saw and when I first saw Female Trouble was at a midnight movie showing with a bunch of punk rockers at the University of Rochester. They were walking out in disgust in the 90s. I was like, this movie is making punk rockers leave in disgust in the 90s. <laughs> I'm so proud of it. I love it so much. And uh, and reading his books and seeing interviews with him, that's when it cemented him. As, as a person, he's just one of my favorite people because he's one of those guys, maybe not always, you know, I'm sure he had his, he was living in Baltimore and being a freak and being gay and being you know, friends with all the, the, you know, the lowest low lives he could. He was it was probably awkward. But once he got going, he was net. He's one of those people who is 100 percent comfortable in his skin. He has nothing to apologize for. He'll explain to you what he was doing in his movies gleefully. <laughs> you know, he'll get to the rudest parts and he'll start telling you about them. And and if it, it went, I haven't met him, but people who have met him in person are like, he's the most polite, you know, friendly guy you'll ever meet. And I I just love and that attitude is in even in his transgressive movie movies about the lowest scumbags of the earth. He makes them all their characters are who they are they are proud they're not just they they're not just are who they are they are proud to the point of where they think they're better than other people for being the way they are and it's just it's in a way the most positive and subversive message at the same time one of my proudest moments was when uh our uh a friend from high school with of Scott and I and uh, uh, and Scott McGregor uh, Candy Cullerton is a, a DJ in down in Florida, and she interviewed John Waters and got that clip of John Waters saying, "You're listening to the Two True Freaks podcast, and if you're not listening, I'm going to find you and kill you." Wow. <laughs> One of my proudest moments when that was delivered to me. And uh, he's written a bunch. Any book written by John Waters is highly, 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 highly recommended. He's just a great storyteller. And such a positive person, but at the same time, 
I'm not a fan of positive people. They often rub me the wrong way and it comes off saccharine and fake. Definitely there's no saccharine and <laughs> it's all grease and poop and stuff, uh, you know, or whatever. But he's but he's actually not his person like as a person. He's a very conservative, you know, person. He does not go out and party and he's polite and thinks people should be nice to each other and stuff. But he makes these horrible movies and you can put him on, you know, a local TV station doing the press junket and he'll charm, you know, people who should be who would normally think that he was a rabid foaming at the mouth monster i i just love him and i don't think this this comic sort of gives justice to it it's weird it was almost as if it was written for somebody who already knew all about john waters mm-hmm. which doesn't really make sense because then you're getting the most cliff notey cliff note story of it but there's stuff in it that's not a, like the the first panel after the introduction panel where he's a little kid and he's sitting in the car and he's like jeepers i think this is real blood that's a real story from you know it looks like just sort of a funny illustration from it but that's like one of his formative moments where he got i i don't know if it was a bonnie and clyde death car or if it was um oh um, what's her name who got beheaded uh jane mansfield he was he they they would trot death cars around to fairs and, uh, you know, you'd see, see, you know, um, James Dean's death car and he got set down in one of the death cars and there's blood on the seat and stuff. And he was just like, oh, this is awesome. And they don't really they show it, but they don't explain it. I think they should have explained it. It would have uh, it's it's a yeah. because really, when I read that, I had no idea right. what the significance of that was. It's just kind of a creepy, weird thing to have in there. You know, you would just say it, 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 it from reading the other big books. It, it's almost one of the little impressionistic things that they did that didn't necessarily happen, but they just put it in there as a sort of comic-y joke. But this really happened, and if you explained it, it would have it would have actually, you know, maybe there was a maybe they forgot to put a some some text in there or something, but uh, it would have. Um, I mean, he always mentions it as a formative experience. It would have colored the rest of you know the story and the in the comic but for the most part it's a it's a pretty decent uh decent portrayal mm. <laughs> i like the quote i don't want to be 80 years old and making movies about people eating colostomy bags <laughs> yeah that's a good line <laughs> but it might happen <laughs> i just his last book was great he he just got the idea in his head that he wanted to hitchhike across the country and write a book about it and so he did and he's, you know, he's getting up there in age. That sounds he, like Allen Ginsberg or something, yeah. It was not quite as, uh, you know, it was not that, you know, he's a, he's an older guy and he's also a fussy homebody. So he made sure, and he's got money. So he had people, he, he was on the internet, you know, so checking in with people and was able to negotiate a few rides when he couldn't get a ride you know be on the internet going ah, i'm on highway so and so and then like have some john waters fans go Woo, we'll give you a ride but that was usually only when he was uh and it turned out to probably be, to be a pretty non-eventful that you know not the um crazed story that you would expect about hitchhiking across the country full of danger and and stuff like that. So he did a really inventive thing as he 
split the book up into thirds. And the first, um, I can't remember which third was first, but one third of it was, this is what the, you know, the, his ideal version of it would have been. What would have been John Waters' version of heaven um, would have been, you know, this person picks him up and then this, per, you know, a revolutionary guy from a death cult picks him up and takes him out to the cult place, you know, and at one point, Edith Massey, one of his actresses, who's dead, who's dead, but, uh, it, you know, he, she shows up in disguise and gives him a ride and sort of lets him know that it's her. And that part actually, like, brought a tear to my eye. It was so well written. And then a third of it is what's the worst thing that can happen? <laughs> and he's John Waters, so he goes into the depths of what the worst thing that could happen to him. You know, he's he's he, each ride ends up with him the side of the road a little bloodier and dirtier. <laughs> and then the last third is what really happened, what the reality of it was. <laughs> and it was a great read. It was a very quick read, like all of his books. But he's just got this natural style of a storyteller and speaker that's that's wonderful. He's <coughs> very classic in that way, almost the way that like um, this a sort of person that reminds me of that is Henry Rollins, who started out as a punk rocker, and now he's you know his he still does his music, but his bread and butter is going and speaking coherently and uh, intelligently. And, uh, you know, some people disagree various, but like for a punk rock guy, he, he goes out and he gives really good lectures to where you could take grandma to it. And she was like, that Henry Rollins was very entertaining. <laughs> Knowing nothing about who he really is. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. There's, there's something, I mean, there's something very old fashioned, classic American about John Waters, the art he made. Even so, even though the subject matter is horrific, you know, it has there's there's actual you see a dog poop and divine eats dog poop and, and probably the grossest of of anything, you know, in most infamous gross thing he's ever done. It still has this good natured fun. You know, you, you don't feel that you're watching human degradation. <laughs> and and he is I mean. The words human degradation figure strongly in a lot of like Pink Flamingo's dialogue. Yeah, the you have two characters in there that are kidnapping women and keeping them in the basement and inseminating them so they can sell the babies to lesbians. Jeez. You know, it's in nineteen in the early nineteen seventy you know, mid nineteen seventies was uh <laughs> even crazier than it sounds now, you know. So and uh they were the they were the characters that, that the, they were the bad guys. <laughs> uh, I highly you I, I highly recommend John Waters movies to you. You you I think you would have a riot. I would love to hear what what you thought of of some of his films. They are unique in in the American pantheon of film. Eh, well, well, maybe someday. Uh. <laughs> Um, if I ever yeah. make it out to Texas, I'll I'll force you into a film festival. <laughs> All right. Well, do you have do you have anything else uh, that you want to throw in for the Pope of Trash? No, I'm I I think that's about all the puff piece I can do on John Waters. All right, fair enough. 
Okay, well, I guess as far as uh, runners-up are concerned, um, I've got – this is from page 178, The American Dream. And it's basically the story of William J. Levitt. That is to say the – basically this is the guy who directly or indirectly gave us suburbia. And his little section of this book basically serves to vilify not only Levitt, but Levittown, and also I would say the the basic uh, the basic concept of suburbia, and this is actually something that I guess I don't really understand. You know why it is that suburbia gets so vilified because it's basically just a community for people who want to buy a house and have a neighborhood and basically just be left the fuck alone, and why it is that those people have to be I mean, it's like, okay, motherfucker, where should I, they live? You know, it's, where, it's, it's, I, I think I have a distaste for suburbia, but then again, not all suburbia is bad, but I remember as a kid, like there's, there's little suburban communities that are like, were planned or, or they're all planned, but you know, that were set up in the fifties where with like unique houses and stuff. I remember going to visit my cousins in the, in the 70s, around 76, 77, I think it was 76 actually, bicentennial year, in Denver, Colorado, which was having a huge growth spurt. Mm-hmm. And they were laying down the suburbs, you know, in exactly the way it was presented in this. They They were just churning out identical houses for – and you would drive and you would see – you know, trees had they they'd planted trees, but they were just little stubby trees. And you would drive, and I remember going, getting picked up from the airport and going to their house, and wondering how the hell did my aunt find her way to their individual house? Because we were just driving past twenty miles of the identical houses and the identical patterns. The houses were so quickly put up that you would hear them just creaking at night. And it was in Denver, so it was a mile high, so the atmosphere is thin. So you could hear everybody's houses creaking because they were just like, whoom, slapped right together. Yeah. And uh, it was – and, you know, that my cousins were there because they just moved to Denver and he, and he had a job and a decent job and they, they could afford a house there. And uh, – but it was just like this soul-crushing – neighborhood it wasn't even a neighborhood it was just like a house in uh, it, it was it was it is the edward edward scissorhands made it look more attractive because everybody had like colorful houses but these were all just like white houses it was with plastic siding on them mm-hmm. and that stuff depresses the hell out of me i could not I could not live in places like that. But then again, I bet we have suburbs around here that are beautiful. You know, they're right, almost, I mean, they're almost, they're, they're semi rural. I don't know. Growing up in a city or in the country kind of makes you feel like the, the, the suburbs seem weird, neutral and sterile to, as someone who grew up in the country, the suburbs always looked like just a horrible place to live because you neither had the city or the or nature. You just sort of have a collection of houses. 
Whereas in a city, you have the city. You have all the good and bad that goes along with that. And the same with the country. The suburbs, all you had was just people, the people there. And so, like, the, the weirdness there was always weird personal stuff. Whereas in the city, it's like crime and impersonal right. stuff. And in the country, it's it's country rednecky stuff. But... Yeah, the, the the suburbs just n- seemed like to neither take they neither the city or country, and they ne- didn't have the good aspects of either of them or the bad aspects of them. They just seemed like this neutral, vanilla thing. If I grew up in the suburbs, I, w- I mean, the, there's a whole all those generations that grew up in the suburbs. That's where you got Steven Spielberg from, right? So it's not a culturally a cultural wasteland. It's just like symbolic of one. Okay. I guess. Fair enough. Well, it's just there are a lot of people who just look down their nose at the suburbs. And I guess my question is, where the fuck should these people live then? You know, and if not there, where, you know? So and every time I say that to somebody, it's like they they they, they just go silent, you know? <clears throat> so I don't know. It's anyway, that's basically the most I, I mean. There was never going to be enough here to make an entire little bit. Some people don't want to live in the country. Some people don't want to live in the city, you know? Well, I, I count some myself. People do uh, want to, some people want to have a house that they can just go to and, like you said, be left the fuck alone. And that's – it's it's a different kind of left the fuck alone than someone who goes out in the woods, but <laughs> – Yeah. Well, I mean the thing is, you know, I lived in this for a lot of years from like 2006 to like 2009 – I lived in Copperfield, you know, and that's basically a suburb of Houston where it I don't I wouldn't go so far as to say it was a planned community because it really wasn't, but it did sort of grow I think in unexpected ways and one of the things that the identity it had at least at that time was the sort of upwardly mobile um you know sort of 20 something 30 something singles and newlyweds and you know things like that people who lived there and it was just a kind of neat part of town because there were within just a few blocks i mean you had a movie theater you had you know shopping centers you had you know some really neat restaurants and whatnot and you know a lot of these restaurants are chains but at the same time they're still really close to home you never really had to go more than a mile or so or two miles to do stuff you know i mean it was a in in its own way it was its own little enclosed community and you could go beyond that and find because this is houston and so there's tons of shit to do in this town but if you just want to stay in the what but you didn't have to yeah if you just want to stay in the neighborhood and uh and basically be home at a decent time well you know this is not a bad place to live and Anyway, like I said, I mean, there's just this disdain that people have for that kind of thing, and it kind of bugs me. And, and you know, I, I think Copperfield has kind of gone a little bit downhill in the last few years, but that's not why I left. It's just I, I think the arch- I think the architecture is boring and ugly, and like, uh, it, and it spawned the McMansion, which I think is like the ugliest thing that America's ever like thrust upon the world. Right. Well, it, is the McMansion. What I think the future – well, I don't know about the future, but what I think a, like a good idea is my my parents live in that 
that sort of tracked home type of, you know, suburban neighborhood, right? But again, this is just one of those things in life, you know, so much is not really planned. They are right by what had been, you know, like on the, they're on the very border of that sort of suburban track home thing, right? And literally one block over, you get into what had been at one point, the country. And what people realized is, you know what? There's no homeowners association on this street. Right. I can build whatever fucking house I want. It's going to be what I want it to be, and I don't have – and I can do whatever I want. And there's not going to be some asshole tapping me on the shoulder saying, hey, you can't do that. Mm-hmm. But you still have the the trappings and, I, and, for lack of a better term, civilization of suburbia. And so what you have is this, this stretch of road right by my parents' house where – you have these – I don't know as that goes – they're not McMansions, but they are just these – they're bigger than normal homes. They're right. all custom, and they're gorgeous to look at. I mean some of them are just one story tall, but let's face it. The fact that we live in Houston means they're going to be probably two stories and because it's just tougher to build out. But you know, they're buying these plots of land. They're not buying homes. They bought plots of land onto which they built homes according to their own preferences – and so there's a lot of diversity, but there's also a lot of shoulder space between these houses. Yeah. I would say, you know, you got to figure there's probably like what, like maybe 10 feet between houses and the suburbs. Here it's closer to like 30 or 40 or more feet between uh, between houses. And, you know, everybody has their own special little uh, driveway. It doesn't look like anybody else's driveway on the street. They all have their own little gardens. It doesn't look like anybody else's garden. And I thought, if you've got the money to spend like, you know, one hundred and fifty or two hundred thousand dollars building your own house and doing it exactly the way you want it done, this is a really cool thing to do, you know. And you know, I kind of I, I've wondered more than once if that sort of you know do-it-yourself type of thing, if that's not going to become a little bit more prevalent in the years to come, it because is. you know. You're- Yeah, it is. And you're going to see a lot of what's going to become prevalent are individualized, small, smaller and smaller living spaces. That's where we're going. (laughs) They'll they'll be neat, too. They're they're coming up with neat stuff They're they're making small living. Small living is starting to look really attractive to people because it's cheap and they're and they're making. Well, you know, it depends on what kind of liver you are. If you're like one of those people that travels around all the time and stuff, get yourself a little tiny home. You don't have a lot of stuff and cut your losses instead of having to support this, you know, huge structure that that you have. I think that's going to look a, a very attractive to people. And the the, the thing about the, the, the soulless um, suburbs is – they they always start out soulless. As a garage sailor, I go to a lot of suburbs. It's where I get most of my stuff. Mm-hmm. And you go to the housing when you go to where like there's a lot. Of, we're a Kodak town, and it was a big boom, you know, from the 40s to the to the 80s. And uh, so you have like housing developments that were made a couple years ago. There's still ones being made. When you go to the new housing developments. They're all exactly the same. They all have the same crap in them, baby crap, um, the same DVDs, because it's all young couples, you know, from the same time period and the same culture. 
they don't have much neat stuff because they're raising kids and they're, you know, they have, they're spending their money on baby clothes. But you go a mile over and then it's, it's, it's a, a tract out, but it's from the 50s. Right. And all of a sudden, all the houses are different colors and they've been, you know, they've had several families live in them and everything's got their, you know, the trees have grown a different way and they've done their yards differently. And you have houses that people have lived a generation and raised the kids and the kids are gone. And then you get all sorts of great stuff. And driving through the neighborhoods is not boring and it's they're 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 nice and homey and and quaint or nice and 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 stuff like that. So I think a lot of it takes a generation of people living in them. A lot of the uh, although when you build them crappy, they're not going to last that long. Yeah. And in a generation, they're just going to look trashy and they're probably going to be, you know, um, housing for people with less money, which means they go downhill more. So I, I like them when they start them out looking like they're made out of wood and metal and paint instead of like plastic siding and you know those those windows that just the, instead of being really four panels they just have like a white white lines on them and stuff like that and you can see that they're yeah bent a little bit like plastic <laughs> yeah that stuff i hate that it just it's ugly i can't see how people live in it without being like uh <laughs> right it needs my personality well my runner up was practice 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 on page 168 which is the the punchline to the old joke hey how do you get to carnegie hall practice 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 <laughs> uh, florence foster jenkins who was a terrible singer but she was just into singing and all her life she presented herself as this great singer and made people you know put on presentations until enough people were willing to go see her knowing that she was terrible, that she actually rented Carnegie Hall and sold it out. They were turning people away for her master performance on on Carnegie Hall. And, you know, she, she went through this phase of people who are quirky artists mm-hmm. of where you make they're, they're made fun of for a long time. But after a while, people were like, I know she's a bad singer, but you know what? She's really into it, and that makes people really into it. And people don't think of that as real art or her as a as a successful – they think of her as a joke sort of in this. But to me, that's success. That's art right there. That's that's music. You know, the, the, the fact – she could not have done a lifetime of, of this – just being talentless, you know, or, or well, or it, it, she's ta- she might be mostly talentless, but with, with an enthusiasm or some the je ne sais quoi, you know, that or a, a spirit that makes people like what she's doing. It reminds me a little of Wesley Willis, the guy who did Rock and Roll McDonald's and Suck a Dead Donkey's Dick. <laughs> he's a street person. He's, I, I believe he's from Texas. He might have been from California. He was a street person, and he used to just sit out beg money with an old Casio keyboard making up lyrics, and people started recording him, and eventually he went on tour. And, you know, you'd start you, – you'd hear rock and roll McDonald's all over the place in the 90s, and people would go to see him to, like, let's go see the freak show, 
And after after about three songs, you're just sort of like, yeah, <laughs> this is great. You got into his mindset you and the, the thing that he was doing, and you just got into a space where you would enjoy it. And you'd hear that same Casio beat start up and go like, yeah, <laughs> even though it was the same one from 10 songs ago. And and at first it was a sarcastic yeah of everybody like, haha, we're making fun of this guy. He's actually here in front of us to there would be the point where he'd won over the audience. And that's what this was. There was a woman named Mrs. Miller that made records, too. Um, I'm sure you could go to YouTube and just go Mrs. put in Mrs. Miller. And uh, woo. <laughs> Wait, was she that sort of crooning vibrato thing? Yeah. Wait, she was in an episode. You did, you had one of her songs in an episode of. It's what somewhere I probably used some of her song, one of her songs. I'm sure. Yeah, I think it was Media Masochist. I think base. I think it was the episode that you, that you did about the room. You basically said, "Well, here's somebody who sucks," and as a kind of a. <laughs> As sort of a companion, here's something else that sucks, and boy, you talk about sucks. Yeah. I I think that – now I don't remember, but okay, man. Wow. Yeah, that makes sense because Tommy Wiseau and and Mrs. Miller are sort of in the same – Fellow travelers in a weird kind of way. Yeah, they are. They are. And and the thing about them is – there's a million people who sing for shit, and there's a million people making shitty movies, just as shitty as as Tommy Wiseau's movie. There was it was because of him, <laughs> and his personality and his weirdness. It the, that movie is compelling. It's not good by it's it's horrible, but it's compelling in its badness. So you know he deserves his acclaim even. If people are being ironic with it or whatever, he deserves to make money off that movie for the rest of his life. You know, he deserves that movie, that the place that, that movie's gotten, as does Mrs. Miller and uh, Florence Foster Jenkins. They, they, there's a lot of people who are shitty singers, but to be, and there's a lot, and there's people who are fantastic singers who don't make it to, to um, Carnegie Hall. Yes, she had to rent Carnegie Hall, but you know what? She sold it out. <laughs> okay. and, and she's a terrible singer who sold out multiple performances at Carnegie Hall. You got there's something's going on there. Something's happening there beyond just like people being silly and wanting to make fun of her. People won't go to that much shit. People won't go to that much effort for things that they like a lot of times. So well, there was uh, there was a uh, golly. Um, since since we're kind of touching on the the subject of the room, um, <laughs> I, I, I could not let this go. Our, ages ago, I found this. Somebody decided to troll an advice columnist. Uh-huh. Oh yes. <laughs> oh okay. So, so you know where this is going. I'm familiar with this. Yes, and they and they basically gave her the gave the a, story they, of the room, right? Yes. And it says, "Dear Amy, I have a serious problem with my future wife. She has not been faithful to me. I overheard her talking to her, and it basically it just goes on from there. And it basically says, you know, it gives the entire pitch of the room using like even exact dialogue from the room. 
<laughs> and I'm guessing that Amy Dickinson had never seen the movie before because she gave him, she said, the first thing you should do is not get married. Your fiance's <laughs> behavior and your response are the very essence of dysfunction. <laughs> it's just uh, fucking great. Hey, like, hey, man, if people are able to troll people with the story of the Fresh Prince of Bel-Air, you know, they're definitely going to get away with the room. <laughs> well, and like, that's the thing. I mean, this is one of the, and I know we're getting like way off topic, but that seems to be the flavor of this oh, show yeah. anyway. <laughs> but, you know, this is one of those things where on the one hand, normally I don't condone trolling professionals because they generally have bigger fish to fry. But let's face it, it's a fucking advice columnist. She needs all the help she can get. Yeah, 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 yeah. So I'm fine with that. And this is one of the things about trolling, and I would say just performance art in that, general. That's not a bad – that's the kind of troll where even the columnist was probably very She was a really good sport it. about it, you know? Yeah, I would be very amused too, you know? And the thing is, I mean, number one – this is one of those things. It works on so fucking many levels. There's the, there's the therapeutic aim, uh, angle here where, you know, Tommy was so – if this is how he truly sees the world, dude's got yeah. issues. He's There's, he's he's in the men's rights activist. <laughs> oh, oh, he is. <laughs> okay. No, no, I'm not. I, I don't know if he is or not, but his worldview is very similar to. It's a worldview of somebody who doesn't know much about ladies. <laughs> yeah, no, there's no question there. It also works on the level of entertaining. Let's face it, this is the primary level of entertaining the reader, and also fans who know something. Well, I shouldn't say fans, but aficionados of the room maybe is the is, is the most you can say we're there just having a ball with this because this is just such a good joke and then you know what let's not overlook the obvious amy dickinson she got a free column out of this how much free press did she get out of this right. and she was oh, giving no, good I, advice i'll bet you she got i'll bet you she i'll bet you she started noticing a big bump in her attention once that happened so yeah it that's that's the kind of troll that's just it's just pure fun. It's funny. It's a good joke, you know, and it's and it doesn't hurt anybody. As a matter of fact, it 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 her giving that advice is just as good as advice as real advice. It's uh, I'm sure there's people in similar situations as Tommy Wiseau actually, and and I mean the thing about it is when I watch the room. I, I know that's not how it played out. <laughs> We're seeing how it played out in Tommy Wiseau's head, which is crazy. <laughs> yeah, it's yeah, certifiable in fact. It's yeah. in the, yeah, it's in this weird world of like of it reminds me of like if I was ten years old and I would have to describe a relationship, you know, an adult relationship <laughs> with a girl. That's how I would do it and then you know you take their clothes off and throw roses around and then you have sex and blah 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 and nice doggy and all, all that it's yeah, just, nobody lives their life that way nobody oh no, no but in his head he does he was thinking he was thinking i have to show what a good guy i was so what is a good guy and he probably was doing something like hey a good guy goes and gets roses for his girlfriend you know that that that's just like the good guy. One of those things, like in high school, it's like these guys treat their girls like shit. I would get her roses every day. And oh yeah, the fucking it, nice guy. Yeah, 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 yeah. I yeah. hate I the mean, fucking. Yeah, fuck that you. was what Tommy was always was presenting himself as. He was like, "Look, I'm going to buy, I'm going to buy roses for my girl because I love her, and I buy her roses every day. Yeah. You know how you know I buy roses every day? They know me at the flower shop." 
and I know the dog there, and I love that dog. Nice dog, you know. And you're how, one of how, our best customers, Johnny. How much of a better guy could I be? How, how much of a better guy could I be? <laughs> and she did this. She was a demon. And and they do the whole thing of where she's like, we'll be together forever, and blah blah blah. And then all of a sudden she's sleeping. You don't you you know there's no character development with her. You don't see why she's sleeping with her. It's just because she's evil. <laughs> it's awesome, awesome. <laughs> yeah, and I'm that, to watch it again. Yeah, well, I don't know. That's just fucking. That's that's where this. Discussion seems like it wants to go, so fuck I just, I, I just, I just actually, it's funny. I, I, um, a friend of mine invited me to go see the room with him. That there was an MSTK at the theater that you could, or riff tracks live at the, or you know, you could go to the theater and watch a riff tracks of the room. And I actually declined because I was like, I don't want to see somebody talking over the room. I want to <laughs> just watch it. Well, yeah, yeah here's the, the thing. Next guy being witty about it. I want to watch it and 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 experience the movie, I, you know, I, in a weird kind of just hear me out before you before you you strangle me. OK, I almost want to compare it to Star Wars in a way that I don't want to hear somebody do commentary on the room in the same way that I don't want to hear somebody do commentary on Star Wars. Now, different reasons, obviously. But to me, they're both movies. So you haven't listened to our Star Wars commentary? You didn't really do a Star Wars commentary. You did this you did a show where you talked about how awesome the movie is and what it meant to you collecting the trading cards. Honestly, that's what no, it, no, we got an episode for commentary somewhere. You do? Yeah, I, I think, must have missed it. Okay. I, I, well, no, I've, I've never heard it then. I'm trying to think. There, I think there's only one Star Wars movie that Scott and I haven't done a commentary for yet. So, except for Force Awakens. Oh yeah. Well, that I don't know. That don't that might that not happens. happen. And I think Rife and, and Steve Glosson sort of did the perfect version of that. Well, you guys did for sure. I know you did a, a commentary about Jedi, and I don't know why. It's not that I don't like Jedi. I love Jedi. You know, I. Lo- I love Jedi as much as I love Star Wars, as much as I love Empire. I mean, to me, they're all equally good, you know, but there's a there's a something there's a truth or there's an honesty. There's something to Star Wars and to some degree Empire that it kind of defies somebody talking over it, whereas you I don't think that's as true of Jedi, you know. And, you know, I would say that in, in a weird fucked up kind of way, the same thing can be said of the room in as much as. I don't I also don't want to listen to somebody talk over it. There's literally nothing you, anybody can say that's worse than what's in the movie itself. There's nothing. You know, and if you must have somebody talking over it, I would actually sooner want to have another screening of the just the movie, not a riff tracks, but just the movie for an audience of people who lovingly hate it and they're throwing shit at the screen. Focus, yeah. focus. Yeah. They they're applauding every credit. Yep. Many of or which are Tommy was so line up now and then like uh, like Rocky Horror or something like that. Yeah, where yeah. the crowd's participating. I'm gonna be scandalous here and say I'm not the biggest fan of riff tracks. A lot everybody I, I never thought they were funny. Loves, I think they're funny and I like MST three K too. But um, as a matter of fact, I think uh, like all the people all the writers for that are some of like 
they're in the level of Firesign Theater to me in, in wittiness and stuff. But the thing that I don't like about it is that and that that makes it so good and why people like it is they sit down and they watch the movie like a dozen times and they write out their they do a lot of it spontaneously and then they save the best stuff and then they write stuff. That's how it's consistently funny all the way through. Mm-hmm. But it takes and and I watch them and I laugh and stuff. And I will watch I watch MST3Ks and riff tracks of movies that I if I'm gonna watch them it's gonna be a movie I've already seen. It, it. Yeah. Otherwise, I don't want anything to do with it because even with even though the even though they're mostly focusing on bad genre movies or just terrible movies, I I want to watch I I'm more interested in the bad movie than mocking it. Maybe after seeing it a few times. I want to see what riff tracks will come up with to do it, and it'll be funny and stuff. But for the most part, I don't, I don't want. I I put bad movies, low budget movies, genre movies. I put them all on the same footing as a blockbuster, as an art film, as a Oscar bait. A movie's a movie, so I it's. It sounds pretentious, but there's a degree of respect even for the terrible filmmakers where I want to see it as it is and, and let it fail. On, and, and and I mean, a lot of the enjoyment I get is the badness of it or going, oh, Jesus, what a st- – oh, my God. <laughs> but I like doing that myself. I like seeing it in the – and then maybe the riff track afterwards and been like, oh, yeah, okay, they caught that thing that I ca- – oh, my God, I didn't catch that or – or something like that, but as an in- initial thing, and like, it, and I was especially resistant to seeing it in the movie theater because I went when I went to I was really excited when the MST3K movie came out, right? And it was This Island Earth, and then I went to the movie, which I don't think is that horrible of a movie, but whatever, they can still have fun with it, and we went to see it in the movie theater. And then the audience got uh, then, okay, I'm watching it. I want to see riff tracks. These guys have their lines. Then there just had to be these fucking want to be riff track people in the audience. Oh, geez. Who decide yeah. They want to do it too, you know, and, and they're people who are very, you know, they might even be very smart They're but they're, you know, they're convinced of their wit and they, and, and that I, I almost was like, got up and told people to shut the fuck up but i was just like no i guess this is not the place to tell people to shut the fuck up but it was very annoying to me it was just like so now the riff tracks and the audience are fighting for my attention with this movie (laughs) you know and and the audience was definitely not on the comedy level as the guys from mst3k so it was just getting but at the same time, I think I might have been one of the only ones who was like, shut the fuck up. Everybody else was laughing and encouraging it because they were probably thinking of stuff for them to do at the same time. And I was just like, I got to get the fuck out of here. <laughs> OK, um, I, I hate to tangent us even more, but um, <laughs> Scott Rifen just posted something on Facebook. Actually, it was closer to an hour ago saying this is not a drill. This is not a drill. Abe Vigoda dead at age 94. 
That's funny. I just saw a post yesterday of somebody posting stuff going, this is Abe Vigoda. He's still alive. Yeah. He's actually still alive. Yeah. Um, and maybe that gives away the day that you and I recorded this. But, yeah. Um, you know, it's for those of you listening, I, I just. The day I, the music died, man. Uh, yeah, that's. I, I like I like Abe Vigoda. It's, it's too bad. But you know what? He had a good run. Well, you know what? I hate to say it. My uh, <laughs> first exposure to Abe Vigoda, it was an episode of Superboy, the TV show from the 80s. Oh. He was in an episode of that. Then the next thing I saw him in was Look Who's Talking. Oh, yeah. No, you're not going down the right path. You got to start at, <laughs> you, you got to start with, um, whatchamacallit, I... Barney Miller. Oh, and then I saw him in The Godfather, and those well, are that, the th- that's good too. <laughs> yeah, those are the so I kind of went I guess backwards in his career. Yeah, but um, oh, just skipped Barney Miller. Barney Miller is just like that's the that's the that's Abe Vigoda right there. That's just like his character his character Fish, and that is amazing. And it was like, I mean, back when Barney Miller was on in the seventies and early eighties, you know, we, we were thinking. Hey, Vigoda ain't going to be around for much longer. <laughs> yeah, you know what? It's funny. People were saying that 20 years ago, 30 yeah, years ago. Oh, yeah, oh, yeah. He, I mean, he, he was he was the old, old cranky guy in Barney Miller. I mean, it, that fucking guy was old when he did the first Godfather movie. I mean, even right. then people were, you know, taking his temperature, you know, but. He might have been just one of those guys. It's like, uh, what's his name? Running for Barney Sanders. Barney Sanders has looked like an old man since they they showed that picture of him marching with Martin Luther King he was old then too <laughs> he did he looked like he looked like he was a kid but he looked like an old kid you know? <laughs> he did so <laughs> i've seen that it's like, fucking hilarious Vigoda might be just one of those guys he might have been just 50 years old you know during Barney Miller but he looked like you know he was he was a 50 that looked 75 Mm. Now, and, and for you partisans listening to this, we are not shit talking Bernie Sanders. It's just it. He's got it. Let's face it. A, kind of an interesting look. And I'll, I'll say that I like Bernie Sanders. I I am. I'm I'm I'll, I'll come right out and say I'm rooting for him because just for the fact of for the last 20 years, I was like, you know, if that guy Bernie Sanders ran for president, he would win. And so if he wins, I'm going to be like, yes, 20 years of saying it. But at the same time, I can see he is just a, a, is a, a riot. To I, I was watching him the other day and thinking, this guy, it, it, this guy is like the stereotype of the mad 60s professor radical guy just with his with his hair and everything. It's just so much fun to watch i'll make fun of his hair but i'm i'm rooting for him but i gotta tell you the the bernie sanders like the people who are really into bernie sanders remind it reminds me of uh i think it was 2008 and the election before 2008 when ron paul was running for president and all you had to do it was like the candy man all you had to do is go on the internet and go ron paul ron paul ron paul and instantly you know, some somebody's gonna jump up and like. It was I, almost a fucking religious cult with that guy. I understand why people why people like um, 
you know, are into Bernie Sanders. I, I, I also understand why people are into Donald Trump. They're both uh, a different, a breath of fresh air to what the normal thing is. I, I understand that. But man, people get just way too personally involved with it. And I got to tell you, if I hear feel the burn one more time, I'm going to punch somebody. Yeah. Hate that. <laughs> it drives me nuts. Yeah. It's, it's just like, okay, I, I go talk politics, but go talk politics. Don't just, it's not. Can we slog- leave the sloganeering out of it, please? Yeah. You know, that's just fucking. Ret- yeah. So, so it's going to be, I, I'm, I'm not to, not to get political, which we always do to some extent, but 2016 is going to be my year, man. It's going to be high weirdness as far as politics go. It's going to drive everybody else nuts, but I'm I'm going to enjoy this election because I have a very strong feeling that we're going to have an election of Trump versus Sanders, which means, you know, welcome to crazy land. And, and not even saying that, like, that because of their, their crazy, I'm just saying welcome to a world of where it's not like there's never there'll n- never been anything like that in a, look uh, yeah okay in I, a socialist and donald trump are gonna have to do a you know are gonna have to do a debate somewhere that's gonna be that i mean that makes me want to go dig up salvador dali and figure out how to bring him back to life so he can sit and watch that debate you know and and look at him and go you were right man you were right <laughs> Enjoy. (laughs) I'm going to say, guys, what I'm about to say is bipartisan. It's not an endorsement or a condemnation of either of either can either of those two candidates. Right. So let's just put that out there again. At the time that Honeywell and I are recording this, you know, votes have not even been cast in friggin Iowa. Primaries. Right. So we don't know shit. All right. You guys listening to this know more than we do right now. So just. Bear that in mind when I say it is possible, I think well, that – Well, what we're the, saying is either looking ridiculous or eerily prescient Yeah, <laughs> to them right now. Right. But either way – If things work out that it's basically Trump versus Sanders, what I'll say is that I'll enjoy that. I will too. In as much as the – what 2016, what everybody – I mean every, fucking everybody, everybody expected this to be. In the spring, like I would say the winter and the spring of 2015, is that this was going to be a showdown, and I'm using that in quotation marks here, 2016 was going to be a showdown between Jeb Bush and Hillary Clinton. That's what everybody, literally everybody expected. Now, conventional wisdom— And what almost nobody wanted. (laughs) Yeah, nobody nobody wanted that, all right? And again, I'm not trying to bash on— Jeb Bush or Hillary Clinton. I'm just saying that the, the, their respective bases hold both of those candidates in absolute fucking contempt. All right. It's it's mm-hmm. really no more complicated than that. Mm-hmm. And and so, again, I'm not taking sides. I'm just saying that's what it was. And so you have these two off the beaten fucking path out. Well, I can't say completely outsiders, but about as outsiders yeah. as you can be. Yeah, Basically yeah. Actually, hijacking. They're 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 outsiders insofar as they're not. They're neither of them are corporate drones. You know, Trump is tied into the corporate world, 
but he's not their bitch. Let's be real. Right, right, right. Trump is. I, I mean, not that I don't think Trump would do would would do deals with Wall Street and big corporations as president, but you know, I mean, who who as president isn't going to? But he's not. He's not groomed by. He's not. There's nobody giving him money and expecting things. And the same with Bernie Sanders. And then when you put someone like Hillary Clinton or um, or well anybody any of the other candidates besides Trump and Sanders next to them, you can see that line that they come up to, where they're not going to go any further than a certain way because they can't because they're going to piss somebody off. They've told somebody they're not going to go beyond that. That's their limit. And Trump and Sanders don't have that limit, and they just and just by existing, they kind of punk the other people on the stage, you know, because they can Sanders can go there and say, yeah, yeah, you know, I I want to give free health care to everybody. And Hillary can't say that because she's going to get people mad at her. And whether Bernie Sanders can do it or not is not even the point at this point. It's that he he can actually he, he can say that on stage uh, without you know, suffering a consequence and force everybody else to not, you know, he, they, they cannot do what Trump and Sanders are doing. None of the other ones can. And they're just screwed by these guys. And I've been waiting for years for, I've been for somebody like these guys to run for president, whether or not they'd make a good president or not, just to, show that I just know that people were like sick of seeing politicians that are just sort of in that weird, you, you know, they're bullshitting you. They know they're bullshitting you. There's this sort of agreed upon level of bullshit and people have to determine what their personal level of bullshit is before they start hating that politician. But they always expect them to say a certain thing, to not say certain things to do certain things and to like really not to act like people to act like robots to try to please everybody. And, you know, they expect them to get dirty. They expect them all to go like, well, in this, we're not going low and negative on this, this time, you know, we're, we're going to, we're all going to run clean campaigns. And then one person goes to the dirt and then they all go to the dirt and everybody goes, yeah, that's just how it goes. That's just part of the way it is. And Trump and Sanders are saying like, well, no, it doesn't necessarily have to be like that. <laughs> and people are and you can see everybody's just like excited by it. And uh, I don't I think people are putting a lot of uh, weight into this election because it's possible that we could end up with a President Trump or President Sanders. And depending on your political view, either of those can seem like terrifying, either wonderful or terrifying. But. I think it's more of what – even depending on – if one of those two wins, either one of them, you know, whether it's Trump or Sanders that ends up there, if they, if they end up there, it's going to change everything after that. And it's going to be the people that get elected after that that we're going to see – you know, something, something happened from it or a, cha a sea change in it. You know, if one of those two wins, all the rest of the politicians in the world are going to have to think, man, I got to go in that direction, you know, yeah. not even the political <clears throat> direction, but the, the direction of being like, 
I need to be not controlled by, you know, or I have to present myself in this way to people. And I think overall, that's a that's a good thing. I think that's something we need. I hate to say that <laughs> Donald Trump is something we need in this country, but in a way, it's 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 an interesting and and it's saying something that's needed to be said for a long time in a big way. So it's it's going to be very interesting. It's going to be torturous for most people, but yeah, you and I are going to be like trolling it up. <laughs> well, look, and, and here's the thing. I mean, again, this I, I want to bend over backwards to say this. This this is bipartisan. I'm not being ideological here. What I like about the prospect of Trump versus Sanders, right, irrespective of how realistic that is or isn't, what I like about the prospect of it is that it actually reflects the sea changes that have been happening in American politics over the course yes. of, I would say, for sure, the last 20 years. I feel comfortable yes. saying that. And <clears throat> the fact of the matter is that a lot of – and again, this is just my reading – but a lot of people who classically identify as Democrat are not necessarily doctrinaire liberal. And right. a lot of the people who identify as Republican especially are not doctrinaire conservative. Right. If you just look at the – the and, and this is anything. This is paleoconservatism, neoconservatism, or <clears throat> in I, I would say as it was kind of the latter half of the uh, George W. Bush administration, this sort of weird kind of corporate conservatism, if that makes sense. <clears throat> what you see are – people who have like i guess the sort of family values conservative culture they're not necessarily small government you know and there have been a lot of sea changes that have happened i think in the last 20 years that have been very pr profound but have not been ref reflected reflected in the yes. our in, government in, in, is like 20 years 10 to 20 years behind everything else and it's moving too fast now for them to be behind and that's why you see them they, like that's why Bernie Sanders was ignored in the news. NBC today like printed some dismissive thing about him and they and they're starting to go like, "Oh, Bernie Sanders could win the primaries." He's you know, he's actually he's beating the shit out of Hillary. It's totally predictable. He he's doing exactly what Obama did to her in 2008. But there's still I mean, Trump dominates their reporting. But they're still just like, yeah, Trump might be the candidate. There's no way he could win the presidency of the United States. Don't and be too sure I, of that, guys. I hear them say that, and I'm just like, you, and they were saying this, uh, Bernie, Bernie, <laughs> Bernie Sanders is running for president this year. <laughs> I remember that happened, and I'm going, oh my god, you guys are going to be eating so much shit pretty soon. And you know, and they ignored him, and they ignored him, and they ignored him, and he was getting bigger because. They're operating 20 years behind. They're in an old world and they're just like they can't comprehend that, that you know, people, you know, that I mean, look, like, it comes down to media. Okay, Ideologically, look. you know, I could see someone going like I could see not voting for Trump, but there's people who just think, you know, OK, you can vote for Donald Trump. Just immediately their brain shuts off and goes, <laughs> no way, nobody's ever going to do that. <laughs> and that's really dangerous these days to think like that. I agree. And like to me, so much of this, basically what it comes down to is media. Everybody have, on TV has been doing – everybody on TV has been like 100 percent wrong on all of the 
political sides like yeah what, by 180 friggin like here's the yes thing, you know like 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 wrong wrong exact opposite the democrats and the republicans neither of them are they, they sit there you know i mean and they'll say they'll they'll say these things you know well trump could never do this and it's like he's doing it right in five feet in front of you right now yeah <laughs> we're watching him do it and you're saying no that he couldn't do it well he's already done it so what are you saying you know and they're just like no it just it can't happen that's that's not how it works you know that yeah and and the thing is what the people who are who are saying this are basically just fucking drones okay they they are given a sheet of paper and they're told to read off of it and they're all from right. they're they're from a contained world too that, that 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 that's all that they see they're not they're not paying attention to anything but the same old stuff that they've been that they think is the important circle and the world's been moving on in the meantime yeah and like and look here's the thing the people who are giving them that little that little sheet of paper and saying read this they're operating on assumptions, prejudices, and worldviews that I'm sorry, people under the age of 60 just do not have in this country. All right. Yeah. I yeah. know a lot of liberals, and you know, hell, that was the you know the preponderance of my workplace. And I'm here to tell you, most of them could give two shits about um what's a popular liberal like uh like the UN okay could yeah. give a fuck about right. foreign policy don't give a damn about they don't care okay they really don't i mean if we can get it that's fine but they don't their worlds don't rise and fall on that what they want is um healthcare okay right, what right. they want is some ideal of equality however you choose to define that all right or or what have you and then the Republicans I know, I know, guys, I live in Texas. I know even more Republicans than I do Democrats. And I'm here to tell you, they don't give a flying fart about uh, about the size of government. OK, and a lot of them to right. show you how doctrinaire they are not uh, when it comes to things like rolling back Social Security or Medicaid. Why the holy hell would we want to do that when a lot of people depend on things like that? Or here's another one like subsidies. People depend upon that. You mean to tell me that these people whose livelihoods rise and fall based on, you know, the amount of um, uh, federal dollars coming into their farm or whatever, or, or yeah, or yeah, or for that matter, you know, or or their husband's social security or something like that? Do you yeah, really yeah. mean to tell me that they're going to want to roll that shit back? I don't think so. Right. And so right. here you've got on on the Republican side, you've got a candidate, Donald Trump, who makes no bones about the fact that stuff is. If we touch that at all, it's going to be to expand it. Okay, we're not right. cutting anything. Right, right? now, well, what that's we the are thing gonna... about Donald Trump is, and he's from New York City. Donald Trump, I mean, what he he's talking and talking on on state, but his history, he's pretty social, definitely socially liberal. Donald Trump, I think, is president could end up going either conservative or liberal in almost any decision. See, here's the thing, dude. We're, go, we're, we're coming into a world, I think, where the classic like, liberalism – those, those, those definitions and categories should be out the window. Because, or, or what like you need to do saying, is recognize that they've changed. Okay? Have, either we need to get rid of them or redefine them. Yeah, I, I, you know, here's an example. I, I worked with a guy who was uh, very religious, um, 
from the inner city black guy, religious, you know, Baptisty sort of, you know, heavily religious, very conservative, votes Republican and stuff, mm. super gay rights because his uncle was gay and he was very good friends with his uncle and was just like, you know, it was it 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 was a it something he could direct directly experienced and he formed his opinion on that so he was just like i you know i think you know he's had a he's had a boyfriend for 30 years why shouldn't they get married you know that sort of thing you know not a typically you know doesn't he's not because of his life he's has a different opinion on something that doesn't go with the textbook and in these days you're just very pressured if you want to identify as a Democrat or a Republican of sort of following the party line, which is just always very dangerous because you're always going to end up following something that's wrong just because it's the opposite of somebody else or it's what's in your crew's philosophy. And I think over the last 30 or 40 years, we've just ruined both of those terms by each side slagging them to the point of where I just don't think they're relevant dis- anymore. I, I don't think right, that they matter. Right, right. I right. don't. The, the, the spectrum is, is way more blurred. And, and the, the polarization of America is not as, as, as apparent. It's not as real as it seems apparent that it is. I think a lot of it is because of the way the internet and media work. And I'm not even saying it's a plot or a conspiracy. I'm saying it's the way we consume it and the way it's, it's perceived is the extremes go to the front because that's the most interesting, loudest, um, likely to spur attention and discussion. So you get this, you get this, um, and, and everything has to go by fast. So you get a this or that, you know, you're either this or that now put them together and fight <laughs> and go. And, it, and I, I think the people who get real, there's people who are sort of like that and get really involved in it, but they're, they're the ones who are actively fighting on the internet and, you know, railing for and against stuff and talking politics, but they don't, most of the, most people are going on Facebook to put their family pictures up, talk to their friends a little bit, see what sort of funny stuff is on there, and get out. They don't study politics that much until it's an election, and then they sort of look into it or whatever. But they're not, lot they're not pe- theoreticians. Pe- yeah, the, most of the country is not like take, <clears throat> taking a stand on abortion or taking a stand on global warming. They're, they're mostly – they have their opinions – and they're just keeping them to themselves <laughs> or, you know, amongst their friends in polite conversation. They're not going on the <clears throat> internet to fight about it. Yeah. Whether it's whether they see something that's horrendously right or wrong, they just, yeah, there's no use fighting about it. I got my opinion of it. So that means a lot of people trying to judge their actions and how to like run a political campaign are doing it off that. I, I, I think America is hugely liberal in most ways that's how barack obama got he 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 got elected because he said i'm the liberal i am way more liberal than anybody else and i'm i'm the liberally liberal and and i'll always remember he said uh i'm not going to play the game better than anybody else i'm going to change the game and i think people saw that and they said yes we want the game changed 
He got elected. He didn't change the game. And, but all the people who elected him still landslided him in again on the next one because they're like, well, I'll just go lesser of two evils and vote for this guy again. But those people, like, were those people who elected him were disappointed by him immensely. And, um, there, you know, there, it's not different. It's, and that's how the Tea Party started. There's just most of the people in the country are sick of the right and the left as they are and they will are obviously actively seeking out people who don't represent <laughs> what was represented before and I love it but I, I think it's we're in an opening step I don't think Bernie Sanders or Donald Trump are like the per, are the magic bullet that's going to be tossed into e- either one of those guys if either one of those guys gets elected the people who voted for them are going to better stay involved if they want what they want done because both either of those guys become president they're going to have democrats and republicans they're going to have everybody in washington is going to be ready to fight these guys well, so like the thing gonna, is that the value of their candidacies isn't necessarily what they do when when they get in the office to me what it's the it's the sea change that they presidents represent. Presidents aren't that powerful anyway. Presidents are like the. Well, they can do a lot. I mean, they, yeah. they, they can do a lot. But the thing is, it's I, more I about it's what the they attention port- on them is disproportionate as be, of being like what represents. Oh yeah, that is what's true. happening in the country. Mm-hmm. You know, gas prices are going up. Thanks, Obama. You know, it's like well, it's a, actually more complicated than that. And Obama, but yeah, whatever. They're. It's just not as look, it's more about what this means for the future, right? And the way I see things happening, and if I'm wrong, I'm wrong. But historically in America, well, not in America, but historically in America in the 20th century, the basically the dichotomy was a sort of a. It was basically, if you could picture it, it, it was just a line, a single line. Left is left, right is right. And that's that. And what we're seeing, I think, is multiple axes. And so instead of yeah. it being just left or right, you now have sort of – if you could picture it, it's like a plus symbol. Now it's there's an up and down axis as well. And where people fall on that – you have basically two parties trying to represent as many as four different points of view, depending on the issue. And it's going to yeah, be harder, least. but at the same time, it's not going to be – it basically takes away the – this – again, I'm, I'm, I'm going to try to not be partisan as I say this when I say that there are liberals out there who maybe think that the government shouldn't – fuck too much with the economy they're fine they're liberal on social issues but you know we need to kind of back off on social issues a bit and let people just make up their own minds and not have a dogmatic single view on the subject yeah like they're like partially democrats partially libertarians they fall into but you know and but libertarian can sometimes draw you towards the the right wing shading too yeah it's just too complex to well here's a good guess who i was talking to not last night, it was the night before, Sunday night. The the guys at the Oregon Sanctuary. You were talking to them? I was having a, like, 
on YouTube having a, a message back and forth with um I'm and I don't know the guy's I can't remember the guy's handle but I know the guy's name I was talking to he, he told me who he was but it was a guy that, uh, yeah they were they were sitting on the com- it was on there I went to their um Facebook page and they had the video where they were like looking at Indian artifacts in there and they were talking about how badly they were being stored and they were just talking shit about stuff and I, I grew up around Indian artifacts and handling them and storing them and the, and like do they belong to the Indians and what cases do they belong and it's super complicated but when you have a whole bunch of tomahawks and heads and, and arrowheads if they're in bags in a basement at that sanctuary they're fine they're rocks and these guys are like, this is unprotected. And I basically put a post saying, hey, dummies, leave that stuff alone. You don't know what, what's up with it. Just don't touch it. They're rocks. They're not going to rot, you know, whatever. And somebody came back and was like, don't call these guys dummies. The one, the, you know, the one guy there talking with me, he's a very good person and blah, blah, blah. And, you know, on his ranch. And you can ask any of his neighbors. He's, he's a very intelligent, well-spoken guy. And... So then I was like, oh, maybe so, but you guys aren't presenting anything intelligent. You know, you have, you, you guys have an armed, you guys have taken over a federal building with, with arms and you have, we're talking on YouTube right now. You can put videos up of saying whatever you want. You have the press coming in. You can say whatever you want, you know, you could have spent six months writing the perfect press release that that distills the essence of your argument down to something that people can relate to so when you were here you could present that and pound it home but they have i'm like you're not doing that you know and we ended up having a very intelligent shaded conversation where you know i'm talking to this guy i'm realizing this guy is not a you know a complete right-wing lunatic is not you know uh, a complete um um baba um you know i'm i'm down hanging out blowing things up type guy he's 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 very well spoken he was very polite and nice also and we had a real conversation back and forth where we conceded points and and ended up having a very pleasant conversation and you know I think they're idiots, <laughs> but at the same time, they're not hor- they're not these horrible people. They're not also all of them aren't complete ideologues. You know, there's there's a shading to it. And you, you would assume that this guy was going to be like, look, man, check your constitution and blah, blah, blah. And the Bilderbergs and all, you know, or some sort of variation of Alex Jones. Yeah, and no, geez. he reminded me of the farmers down the street from from me. You know, they have. They have some legitimate beefs. They're not articulating them at all, you know? Yeah. So weird, but... Yeah, I, well, I just wanted to throw all that out there and, you know, just... I, I guess the what I would want the listeners to take away from this is, you know, whatever else you do... I mean, look, I love, you know, posting a bunch of shit on, on, on Facebook and just having fun with it and stuff. But, you know, guys, whatever else you do, just don't minimize the the importance of 
this is this is an election unlike anything I've ever seen, and all I ask is this is that... this is a real first election where it's like you can really get out there and and do something by voting, uh, and 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 any and it not just uh, and, and not just a call to any side of the aisle on that. It, no matter who you are and what your political philosophy is, you could really you could really go out there and and affect a vote, whether it's affecting it towards like getting an outsider in or or getting keeping the outsiders out or or whatever but it's just the most interesting time if if people aren't voting in this election i don't know what's going to get people out kanye west in 2020 uh doubt it we'll see about that yeah it's just the the point is i just want everyone to just just be considerate that's all just give it some thought and at least recognize that you know if this plays out as trump versus sanders guys um all I have to say is all bets are off. So. I'm gonna be. I'm gonna. I'm gonna walk out into the street in my shorts with pots and pans banging on them in a kazoo like. <laughs> <laughs> I'm gonna have a great year this year. <laughs> Shaking everybody's hands. Howdy, neighbor. <laughs> it's a wonderful day. <laughs> Well, and I, I think you know what, dude. We're get we're we're this thing has gone yeah. so long already. I think we better go ahead and wrap it up. But before we do, um, just a couple of items of business. First of all, why don't you tell everybody where they can find you? As if they don't know, I'm sure they do. But you know, let's just go ahead and have it out. You can find me at twotruefreaks.com, where we have more and more podcasts being added by the day. We just added a Clone Wars podcast, J Guys and Jedi that. Hope Mullinex and I do, and uh, yep, you can find us on iTunes too. But I, I, any any nerd subject, you can find it here at Two True Freaks. And I'd rather you come right directly to our house and and sign up for our RSS feed for our fine podcasts. But you can use the iTunes if you want the stupid old iTunes. Yeah, if you want to go old school with it a little bit, yeah. <laughs> All right, and um, now. For those of you who don't know, this is um, this has been a series that Honeywell and I have been we, we sort of embarked upon kind of accidentally, but we did it. We embarked is this upon the penultimate this. one right now? Oh is yeah, this is the next to last one right here. Yeah, and we started this little journey uh, back in I want to say it was like September or something like that, 2013, when Honeywell and I basically sat down and we recorded a show about the big book of urban legends and the reason i wanted to bring honeywell into this was because i was just so new to podcasting that i wanted to have a second voice for that show and the other thing was you know i don't know or i didn't know at the time you know if he really got a chance to talk about comics like this and for some reason this series has sort of bloomed and blossomed and kind of turned into something that all due respect to, to Chris, I didn't originally plan. It just kind of happened. And there's a strong argument that maybe that's the best kind of podcasting, is the stuff that you didn't necessarily intend to happen, happened anyway. And so, as it stands, though, this is the next-to-last episode of the Big Book Report that we're ever going to do. The next one, the final one, is going to be the Big Book of Freaks. And technically, that leaves on the table the Big Book of Grimm and the Big Book of Martyrs. We're not going to talk about the Big Book of Grimm because of the fact that it's just kind of fucking boring. <laughs> and we're not going to talk about the Big Book of Martyrs just because that's 
a little bit far afield of what my show is supposed to be. But uh, another podcaster has contacted me and said they'd like to talk about the Big Book of Martyrs, so they've got my blessing. Someone else is going to be talking about that, so just keep an ear out. And Honeywell and I have got ideas for what the seventh episode is going to be in the future. A few of which, actually, I, I need to run by them after we finish recording. But Excellent. I uh, just want to let everybody know that you know we're nearing the end of all of this, and the way that we've got things scheduled, at least right now, it's going to be the uh, the big book of Freaks is scheduled to come out on July the 19th. And then we've got a... What I, what I wanted to do was kind of have a little bit of a sort of a big book of leftovers type of thing, like a story or two from all of the volumes that we just didn't have time to get to because of the fact that we rambled so much and talked and at times talked over each other there just wasn't time to talk about everything that we wanted to do and so i'm gonna i'm trying normally what i would say is that honeywell's the only one i'm gonna record these shows with but i am trying to bring a third person in uh to the uh the leftover show because somebody has told me that there are a few there was one particular big book that you know they had a lot to say about but it just you know the timing of it just didn't work out so I'm going to try to bring them back for that but then after that he and I are going to just kind of talk about I don't want to get too specific right now but we're just going to talk about other things and so that's pretty much the schedule at least you know for right now but uh, as to next week I'm going to be talking I don't think the show will end up being that different (laughs) you know I I don't either we're we're just not going to have the the framework to to work from but yeah Yeah. I think it's going to actually be basically the same but as to next week uh, what we've got is uh, this is my uh, Magnus talks about Smallville this is the this is part two of my dreaded season four retrospective so you know I know it's the dreaded season four, but I still think that these episodes are actually a lot more entertaining than I was originally expecting they were going to be. So keep an ear out for that. And then after that, I'm going to be starting a little uh, mega series that's all about Robin and Batgirl, or more specifically, Dick Grayson and Barbara. I was thinking about calling this series Babs Loves Dick. Ooh. But uh, yeah, exactly that. So I don't know. But I, that's... I, I like the phrase "little mega series." <laughs> yeah. yeah, I do my best. But so that's <laughs> basically going to be, you know, what's on the docket for a good, a good little chunk of the summer here. So I think that's pretty much it for me this week. So bye, everybody. I will see you next week. <sighs> we are out. in need of some relaxation? Is the pressure getting to him? Well then, we've got great news for you. 
Here at Magnus Doggy Brabble, we have over 1,000 pitches and heat to help your dog relax. For just $300, your little guy can get the happy ending you only wish that you could get. We have all different kinds of breeds to satisfy your furry roommate. Labradors for those who need some all-American love. Shizu for those who prefer something a bit more exotic. Why, we even have Doberman Pinchers if anybody likes it rough. And this weekend, we're offering a discounted special. Two pitches at the same time. And this won't cost you a million dollars either. Get two for the price of one for your studly pet. So bring your furry buddy to Magnus Doggy Brothel. Our facilities are licensed for the finest and doggy pleasure that you'll ever find. Why, just check out all the rave reviews we've gotten on Yelp. Magnus Doggy Brothel. Because a bang is always better than a whimper, right? Right? Am I right? Enter at your own risk. Patent pending. Magnus Doggy Brothel is a subsidiary of Demonzo Happy Ending Ventures. Not responsible for loss or injury. Subject to terms and conditions. Void where prohibited. That's just about the end of that. Trennis Magnus Punches Reality is a proud member of the Two True Freaks podcast network. You can find the home for Trennis Magnus Punches Reality at twotruefreaks.com, which is spelled T-W-O-T-R-U-E-F-R-E-A-K-S. You can also find it on Facebook just by searching for Trentus Magnus Punches Reality. There you can interact with your fellow listeners and also see notifications of new episodes when I put them up. You can friend me on Facebook just by searching for Trentus Magnus, which is spelled T-R-E-N-T-U-S-M-A-G-N-U-S. You can email me and my parole officer at TrentusMagnus at gmail.com. Do you have a suggestion for a topic? Feel free to email me, and I might consider thinking about the possibility of potentially discussing whatever you have in mind someday. And that's a promise. Did you know? You can sponsor any episode of this or any other of your favorite Two True Freaks affiliated shows. That's right. Simply click the PayPal link, donate any amount at all, tell us which show you're choosing, and what message, if any, you'd like us to read on your behalf, and you will be an official sponsor of that show's very next episode. With your message read in the show's opener, it's that easy. And there's no minimum donation. Be a show sponsor today. If you shop at Amazon.com, please consider using the link at 2TrueFreaks.com to shop there. If you use this link to go to Amazon and then you shop, 2TrueFreaks gets a cut of what you buy. It doesn't cost you anything extra, and it really helps the freaks out. You get to shop as usual, and help out the two true freaks at the same time. Do you have a podcast of your own? If so, why not record a promo for me to play on my show? It's quick, easy, and can help you spread the word about your show. 
I'm always looking for more promos to play. Keep it fairly short, and yours could be next. My promos can be found at this show's homepage for those interested. Just look for the promos section. The contents of this podcast are fictitious, hypothetical, and probably completely unnecessary. Any similarity to living persons or real-life events is purely coincidental and void where prohibited by law, some assembly required, batteries not included. Do not remove this tag under penalty of law. All models are over the age of 18. The white zone is for passenger loading and unloading only. Trennis Magnus Punches Reality is a Magnus Media Enterprises Limited production in association with DeMonzacore of Milan, Italy.